Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. everybody welcome to this episode of true crime and cocktails famous fatalities edition as always i am your host lauren ash and as always i am joined by my co-hostess with the most s christy oxborough how you feeling uh you know i think i'm doing great this week hey great's good i was done things on time like not even on time like a little early so that was i mean sure it did cause me to sit on the couch and annoy my husband and go oh god so, oh, I feel like I'm wasting time. I should find something to do. And he's like, or just sit there. Like, and you could you could yep. feel the tension. So I guess if nothing else, what I accomplished was tensions in my marriage. Uh, no, it's fine. Hey, a little relaxation never hurt anybody. Yeah. But like, is future me going to be pissed that past me was lazy? <laughs> I think if future you is calling any of you lazy, she's... She's going to be riding the toe of my boot. <laughs> oh, I like when grandma comes out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I, I don't think that anyone, anyone can call you lazy. It's certainly not you. I, I don't like you talking to my friend like that. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> and now I have to be worried about this one over here. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not freaking out like before. My amount of notes has grown the last few weeks, I've only had so many notes. This yeah. week, there there's a lot. And I maybe got a bit carried away. And they might be a bit of a mess. I've been in a headspace this week. So Listen, yeah. uh, my question is, I had how many for Army Hammer? 42? Yes. 48? Yes. 42? Are you in that kind oh, of range? Are you? I'm not obscene. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting in like the, the, the sweet like 30 range hey my my goal the joke is when we first started this we were like hour and a half we can't go past that can't and so my notes had to be like 13 to 15 pages max and then it has come to 
okay, well, maybe we do two hours. And I'm like, okay, as long as it's like 20 pages, I can. Now it's like a, can I stretch it to two hours if I need to based on the material? And so it's like, if you can get like 25 to 30, it's like, oh, you're going to have nonstop things. And look, it's going to take us a while to get to the to the death because there's so much that I felt I couldn't cut because I'm like, they're going to want to know all of it because I wanted to know all of it. Listen, challenge yourself at some point to do a real, a cool mid-40 pager because that level of anxiety that I felt trying to get through those notes, stumbling, stuttering, uh, mm -hmm. you know, add a couple cocktails in there and uh, yeah, it's a wild ride. It's a wild ride. Speaking of that, seamless transition. Kudos, Lauren. Thank you, Lauren. Oh, wow. <laughs> we're, 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 oh, wow. Okay, that's where we're mm -hmm. at. Uh, what you drinking over there? You know, with the anxieties I've felt all week, I just decided just kick it old school, if I may. I'm doing Pombe, but I'm doing the Rainbow Twist. So I'm going old school, but new. Because you love the Rainbow Twist. I love I it. I love the Rainbow Twist. It's nice. And I already decided that there's only two left in my fridge. That won't do. So I'm going to have to hit a liquor store tomorrow and see what happens get a little messy yeah mess it up i'm gonna my plan is to go in there and need a cart <laughs> <laughs> i have always yep. been that person who's like whatever you can carry in your hands uh and that's it but this time i'm like no no treat yourself get a cart you, so we'll, you deserve we'll it we'll see we'll you see deserve we'll it. see what happens well, listen, I've done something insane. Now, the, 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 these people do not sponsor us. So like we say all the time, we, you know, if we hate it, we'll tell you. Um, Topo Chico is this, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it's a, it's a mineral water. It's a sparkling mineral water. It's very popular here. It's served in glass bottles. Well, now they're doing these spiked sparkling waters. So I bought some just to see. Now... I didn't think to check before I left because I don't love the ones that aren't real vodka. I don't I don't love them. And this one just lists alcohol. <laughs> Which troubles me. It's yeah. like, well what it what is it then? Just, you know, but we're going to do it for the sake of the experiment and the show. Mm -hmm. I have chosen a strawberry guava flavor. Interesting. And I have not sipped it till now. Let's let's give this a go. Oh, it's not bad. Well, that's good. It's not bad. Now, again, we'll see. We'll see what kind of punch this packs, uh, especially since it's alcohol. Alcohol feels to booze that hot dogs are to meat. <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant yeah. and true. Yeah, yeah. It's like dairy product. Yeah, or you know. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's where they get you. Mm -hmm. Edible. Yeah, that's how they get you. Well, listen. Who knows. We'll see you on the other side is the point. Now, obviously, this episode of the show, we're talking about Natalie Wood. Classic, classic uh, old film star. I guess it wasn't that old. But listen, I, I'm on a weird wavelength right now. So just go with me. I like, I like it. Oh, I wasn't going to stop you. I was accepting it. She, to me, now, is we're classic also, Hollywood. She's classic. She feels classic. And she started, I should, she, when she was a child, 
that's kind of old Hollywood. And she was working as a child. So that fits. Okay. You know what? You're right. I need to stop policing myself. Good God. (laughs) Well, listen, and I know people were wearing, of course, our our special uh, True Crime and Cocktails Pride Month t-shirts. These are on sale this month only. Uh, on our merch store, my baby, my, uh, I don't have a human child. Now I have an e-commerce child. <laughs> I, I love that store. It took some time. But anyway, give it a view. Go to truecrimeandcocktails.com slash merch, and you can check that out. 50% of all of our profits are going to go to the Trevor Project this month, which we love. And also, we have a contest running where you could win one of these shirts. We do, and I felt like you yeah. threw that to me because I'm supposed to know the link And I do, which is a change from last week. Hey! So yeah, we're, it's a, we will make a post about the shirt uh, that you can win, which looks just like uh, the ones we're wearing, minus the boobs. Nope, stop. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this time, buckle in everybody. I don't know what's going on. The two of us are both on a weird wavelength. Yeah. Yeah. I'm here for it. Just know it. The shirts are beautiful. And I mean, if nothing else, who doesn't want to support Pride? So absolutely, you can go to truecrimeandcocktails.com slash contest. There's a beautiful little thing. You can just fill it out. Enter. Boom. Done. It goes right to us. We're going to do a draw, I believe, June 25th. We have not selected a time yet, but we will let you know when we have. And uh, yeah. I mean, look at us getting all professional. Yeah. It used to be like, send us a message anywhere. We don't know. Now we've got one place. Bam. Go there. Enter your info. Bam. I love it. Yeah. Well, you want to talk professional. If truecrimeandcocktails.com is a little long and you're like, oh, I'm not typing that. You know what else gets you there? No. T-C-A-C dot X-Y-Z slash contest hey that will get you to our site our lovely it department did something i don't know what (laughs) don't we're professional because we have it we're not professional because we understand it of course of course now again if anyone has any questions on how to open an e-commerce store let me tell you i'm your girl but if there's anything else tech related it's just a blank void and i'm grateful i'm grateful to our it department so shout out to that gentleman it's christy's husband because we're gonna put this together. <laughs> yeah yeah bless him very exciting though very exciting yeah, I think it's great. All of these I think things. the shirts yeah. are beautiful. I think they turned they out They turned out really well. I do have to say this I I went through a lot of different companies and tested bought samples and eh, but this company the products are nice and that's yeah. not me trying to give a sales pitch. We'll move on in 2 seconds, but I just have to say really I really am so happy with how they turned out. Oh, yeah. I think they're I think they look great. I also like I I have moved my thing but i changed my background screen for that's for this month i know i know you're thinking but christy this is the second week in the month and you're right i'm a fool i didn't even think of it like i was told again like i commented to my husband once i'm like wouldn't it be fun to have like something behind me that had our name on it so if we guessed it on someone else's our name was just always there wouldn't that be fun And he just kind of went, I guess. And I was like, you know what I should look into? Like one of those theater signs where I can like put our name, like I was ready for it. 
And he just went, okay, could you do like a monitor? And I was like, oh, I don't know how to do that. And he was like, but would that be okay? I'm like, I don't know, I guess. And then he's like, do you have a photo? I'm like, something like this. And then like days later, he was like, so how about that? And I'm like, okay. And then right when we were done recording the last episode, I was like, you know what? That would have been fun if I changed it for something for Pride Month. And then got into the habit of like changing it, you know, at Christmas time. If that's not us in cute little Santa hats, I'm going to be disappointed. So I'm like, wouldn't that be fun? And I'm like, how hard is it to change? He's like, it's not. And so like (laughs) seconds later, he had it done. So again, kudos, IT. Kudos. Yeah. Where would we be? The answer is not nearly as pro. (laughs) Now, we were talking, of course, about Natalie Wood. And she is obviously very well known for the musical West Side Story. That's one of her, you know, big claims to fame. And so that made us talk about musicals. And it reminded me of, in high school, I was obsessed with hair. Not the stage play, but the movie version with Treat Williams. And I, Christy was visiting me at some point. I want to say we were maybe 16-ish, I feel like. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. And I basically, I don't know whether I gave you a choice or not, but I was like, we're watching hair. (laughs) I want you to love it. See, that's that's the that's why our relationship works because you're confident enough to come in and be like, "I like this and I think we should." And I'm meek enough to go, "Okay." Uh, that's <laughs> that's why it works because otherwise, if it's if it's just two people like me, it's back and forth with like, "Well, if you want." It's okay. Oh, no, right. no, 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 you pick. Like, no, none of that. So the point is, there has to be one person to say, no, we need to make a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I get what you're saying. Yeah, it's true. Which is funny because I don't believe there was a discussion on that. I believe it was just, hey, so I was thinking. (laughs) And and then next thing we know, eight years later, here we are. (laughs) Eight short years later. Oh, we've aged a million. But anyway, so obviously... We're watching Hair, and Blanche, of course, was present. Always. She's been there. Always. We've learned recently, viewing some old home movies, that Blanche has been there for a very long time. (laughs) Oh, it's so funny. So funny. But here's the thing about Blanche. Now, I don't know. I think we may have discussed this when we were talking about Supernatural before, but Blanche doesn't ever want to interfere with me and my focus. And I was passionate about Treat Williams in hair. Like so much so that I used to like reminisce about like maybe, you know, about the all of the stars that I would put in a reverse aging machine. This was my idea. So it's like it would take them back to their prime. It's insane. I, I understand that. But um, like the monkeys, I love the monkeys. And I was like, I need to put them in the reverse aging machine. Yep. I need them back in their prime. <laughs> right? Yeah. I would break Davy Jones in half. You would, and you'd love every second of it. Every second. And uh, I was just going to make some reference because he was a jockey <laughs> about you jockeying, but no, I, I'll stop. <laughs> but Treat Williams was the one who made me even think of that concept because him oh. in that movie for a for a 16-year-old gal oh. was really something. Really something. Uh, it, t- I think the best word to describe it is awakening. <laughs> Yeah. 
Uh, yeah. But listen, of course, my point being is that Blanche knew about my awakening. Yes. And so she immediately diverted. Correct. I mean, don't get me wrong. I get it. I get it. However, Blanche knows that she chose first. So it's not the, it's not the time. Because you you witnessed it. I think you were watching it at right. school as part of a thing. And that's how you found it, but then turned around and rented it. So you could bring it home and be like, this, we need to watch this. And I'm like, great. Mm -hmm. So I had to choose a different hair boyfriend because I couldn't choose. <laughs> Treat Williams. Yeah. Uh, like, oh, Lord, any probably teen girl would. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, I had to make a different choice. And that is a Mr. Donnie Dacus. Donnie Dacus, ladies and gentlemen. The blonde gentleman in that show. Yeah, the movie. The shaggy of that Scooby-Doo crew is yes. how I like to look at him. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And listen, I, that was lovely. And what I liked, again, about Blanche and about you is that you just dove in. You were like, yep, I'm in it now. Let's do it. On board. Here I am. Yeah. I've got a favorite. I Whether I like it or not, I'm here. I'm interested and uh, again, you're right. It's why this works. I just, you know, it's just that need from childhood. You want to fit in. People yeah. pleaser. And yeah. it's like, you know what? If I can't have him, I'm just, I've, I've got to go. I've got to go someone else. Absolutely. And that's just now how it, it should, works for us. It should also be noted that that was one of the trips where I took you to school with me one day. This is what we used to do. Christy used to come visit and then I would like bring her with me to school. And I'm like, how are the teachers just okay with that? I mean, you you only brought me for the day. True. But I do like I I don't know if we should say any names, but I specifically remember I be, I believe he was he English or like history or history. And by history we mean beautiful. <laughs> He was he was uh, stunning, and so it was hard to focus. But I didn't have anything to do, and so I basically got a, a desk at the back of the class and just sat there because that's the true yeah. joke. They weren't going to like rearrange the class so we could sit together. So I was there, but I yeah. barely sat with you, lurking. Yeah, yeah, I was a lurker, and then and and which was fine. It was the way I wanted it to go. I wish I'd thought to even just bring a magazine. <laughs> Yeah, bring something to do. But then, then we then we got to drama class, which is not exactly something I would take. Of course, something you would take that is your nature. And I just remember very distinctly getting there, and the teacher having kind of that same reaction, like on Friends. Was it was it Friends with the? You don't watch a dance class, you dance a dance class I think or something so. like that. Yeah. And so it was like an, oh yeah, we don't have bystanders here. Bystanders here. And I was like, but wait, I, I just wanna I just wanna I just wanna watch. And she's like, Oh, that's not how it works here. Because of course she was the drama teacher. She was a very free spirit. And uh I remember I had to get on a table or a desk or something and stand there and I don't really fully remember what was going on. I just remember it was like an, these aren't the exact wording, but it was like, I was like a god and they had, the the group that I was with had to like circle me like I was some sort of god. Or, I, yes. I thought it was a male drama teacher, but maybe I'm mistaken. Oh, it, 
I I for some reason remember it being an older woman, but I huh. could be wrong. Well, <laughs> again, I went there for one day. <laughs> and the fact that you remember this much is amazing. But yeah, that was the yeah. other thing is that then when we got put into groups for whatever this exercise was, of course we couldn't be put in the same group because it was like, that's cheating. And, you know, I don't know what I expected of them, though. Again, I was bringing an outsider for <laughs> to their classes for the day. So the fact that they were welcoming, I guess, was, uh, you know, more than what I should have expected. I wonder if they were under the impression that it's like, if you guys treat me nice enough, I might transfer here. You know, like, were they thinking we could get at somebody else? Or was it just like a, we love her enough, just bring the other one in? Yeah, maybe. You know? I also have to say, I just remembered this detail from that trip and shout out to my high school buddy Ryan who I know listens to the podcast because he got a hold of I I love that I just put this is Age of Electric related as well I had taken pictures at a meet and greet at an Age of Electric meet and greet at Edgefest and I randomly just like took a picture of each of them as I went by which is so weird because it's like I wasn't in the photos whatever anyway and this was in the time of like scanning and stuff being a big deal because like computers yeah. had just, you know, become like a household item uh, dating ourselves. Anyway, I had given w- one to Ryan and I was like, could you scan this photo for Christy? Uh, and it was a picture of Kurt Dahl, the drummer from Age of Electric. We've referenced a million times. Mm-hmm. But what I didn't realize was it was stuck with a picture of John Kearns, Todd Kearns' brother, who was the bass player in Age of Electric. And... <laughs> And Ryan came to us later and he had scanned the he his idea was to scan and then blow it up, which was so sweet because it was like a very it was a four by six and he blew it up to an eight by right. ten and it was a pretty good quality. But he goes he goes, Well, I you gave me two photos and I, I was trying to figure out which the hot one would be. <laughs> <laughs> and he thought it was John because John had like this like mohawk and he had like a cigarette hanging badass. out of his mouth and he was yeah, really yeah. like, you know, kind of exuding a mood. Yeah. But anyway, you did end up getting the right photo as well. I can't remember whether he went back and did the Kurt photo for you or if he had ended up that doing both. That sounds right. I think he went back and because yeah. we were like, oh, we, we love John. That's great. But but no, it was it was Kurt that we were looking for. But anyway, that just I just remembered that in this moment and and how cute that was and thoughtful of him. Very thoughtful. Oh, 100%. So kudos, Ryan. I don't know if I ever, I don't know if I ever said that. I think you did. You, I just remember being in, I remember being in math class and you were behind me and I turned around and you were just staring at the picture of Kurt. (laughs) I was like, I guess, long story short, you didn't need the magazine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. Right. I think that's also a, a weird other a new look into Blanche is you don't always know who she's gonna pick you never know she I want to believe she has some set of rules or something something that allows her to to have like some sort of consistency in her choices but there's none yeah I would have thought there would be a like Dexter murder rules like Harry's code to Blanche there's not right there's not just she's equal opportunity she's just like everywhere yeah. and nowhere all at the same time you know like I don't know how to explain her she's always here because and yet you've never met her I get it yeah I get it she's like the pokeroo 
<laughs> that's a Canadian <laughs> that's a, reference. That's a Canadian joke there. Oh, I love it. Well, listen, I think we should get into it because I'm very excited. When we started doing Famous Fatalities, uh, I, I had a request for Natalie Wood and it has been a while. And I know that you, dear listeners, have requested Natalie Wood a lot. And I know it's Pride Month and you're like, how does this connect? But I do know that there will be, we'll, we'll get there. Don't you worry. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So for those who aren't familiar, no worries. We're going to walk you right through it. In a career that spanned nearly four decades, Hollywood star Natalie Wood entertained audiences in such memorable films as Miracle on 34th Street, Rebel Without a Cause, and West Side Story. But despite her impressive career, Natalie would come to be known more for her mysterious death. During a boat trip on Thanksgiving weekend in 1981, Natalie was found floating in the waters off the coast of Catalina. The initial autopsy report listed her death as an accidental drowning, but after new evidence came to light decades later, the case was reopened. So what really happened to Natalie Wood? Did she simply slip off the boat while intoxicated? Her husband seems to think so. But if it was just an accident, why did he wait hours to call for help? And why is he now refusing to cooperate with police? Nice. Really good. Really that was one good. of it was one of my longer ones because I try and keep it a specific length. But this, I was like, no, it needs a lot. Yeah. And look, I went into this. I was like, I've seen some of her movies. I've watched West Side Story quite a lot because you know that whole Romeo and Juliet oh, scenario. Yes. I was a sucker for it. Yeah. Like most teen girls, I think for some reason were. Yeah. And so I I knew only so much about her and I knew that she died relatively young. And so that was about it. But I was so happy to learn and will fill you in on various things. What a badass boss she was. Hey. Yeah, like she was, if you're looking for someone to aspire to, this woman... This woman came through hell to get to where she was. So wow. Well, I'm excited end, if, to get If I end it. up breaking halfway through this, well, it's because I've gotten a little too close with Natalie Wood. <laughs> She's in a weird headspace this week. Folks. Listen, ride the oh. wave. Oh, boy. All right. Best known as Natalie Wood, Natalia... Nikolaevna Zakharenko was born July 20th, 1938 in San Francisco, California. Her parents were Russian immigrants, Nikolai Stepanovich Zakharenko and Maria Stepanova Zakharenko. Jeez, every week I find a new name that's just going to haunt me forever. Uh, She was often called Natasha the Russian diminutive of Natalia. Uh, Shortly after her birth, her family moved to Santa Rosa. June 13th, 1943, a headline was published in the Santa Rosa Press Democrat that read, Movie Stars to Arrive in Santa Rosa Today. Director Irving Pitchell had decided that Santa Rosa would be the ideal backdrop for his film Happy Land. The story for the movie came from a best-selling novel excerpted in the Saturday Evening Post. The director had cast a few Santa Rosans in bit roles, such as the town's mayor, E.A. Eamon, who was cast as the mayor in the film's fictional town of Hartfield. Huh. 
The paper listed a schedule of all the film's locations around Santa Rosa wow. and noted that some of the scenes would use upwards of 300 extras. Now, Natasha's mother saw this as her moment. She got Natasha all dressed up, coached her four-year-old on what to do to get noticed, what to say to make the director like her. Maria reminded Natasha to curtsy and repeated the incantation that Maria was once told. You see, before Natasha was born, a gypsy once told Maria that her second child would, quote, be a great beauty known throughout the world. So from that moment on, when Natasha was born, Maria practically ignored her oldest daughter, Olga, who was almost 10 at the time, and put all of her energy into her second child. Even after she had a third daughter named Svetlana, Natasha came first, to the point that when Maria came home from the hospital, after having Svetlana, she passed the baby off to her 17-year-old daughter, Olga, to raise so she could then focus on Natasha. Whoa. Yeah, this woman is a head trip and we're not going to like it. Oh, God. Maria had unfulfilled ambitions of becoming an actress or ballet dancer. Mm. But when those dreams didn't work out, she decided to live vicariously through her middle daughter. But again, more on her deranged behaviors later. Wow, deranged. Yeah. That's a new word we haven't heard on this show yet. Yeah, she's something else. (laughs) So the crew for the movie Happy Land is in town. And Maria is determined to get Natasha into the movie. Maria dragged that poor kid all over town, everywhere the movie went. Actors in army uniforms were assembling for a parade scene, so Maria pushed Natasha into the lineup. Again, Natasha was only four years old at the time. Natasha would later say, quote, My mother made me go march with the soldiers. I really didn't want to do all of this. I was kind of scared. Mother, of course, wanted me to attract attention. After a few days, the director started to notice the child he described as, quote, quaintly pretty and with a absorbed expression following the production around. By the second week of production, Maria had started to send Natasha over to speak with the director. Maria told Natasha to go sit in the director's lap and sing him some songs. Again, she was four. So Natasha does as she's told, and the director is completely charmed by this little girl that he decides to give her a short, non-speaking role in the movie. The director explained to Natasha she needs to walk to a certain point and drop an ice cream cone. He told her specifically where to drop it and how to make it look natural. Maria asked, with tears or without? (laughs) Oh, Lord. In later years, Maria would say the director spotted Natasha in a crowd, and that's how she got the role, or that Natasha approached him on her own. But again, more on Maria's shenanigans later. (laughs) So five weeks before her fifth birthday, Natasha made her film debut in a 15-second scene in Happy Land. A year later, Maria learned that Happy Land director Irving Pitchell was set to film another movie, and she was determined to get Natasha cast in that one. So she did what any calm and rational person would do, and that's pack up the entire family and force them to move to Santa Monica and then change their last name to Gurdon for some reason? Gurdon. 
Gurdon, yeah. Huh. Uh, the family moved in June of 1944 with no job, no money, and no home to go to. Oh Even Lord. before Natasha was six years old, all of her family's hopes were pinned on her. <sighs> the director had a heart-to-heart with Maria about child stars and said families tend to suffer and the child actors miss out on having normal childhoods. He just couldn't bring himself to do that to Natasha. But Maria's not swayed so easily. Oh, boy. Maria and her husband find odd jobs to make ends meet. And finally, in February 1945, Maria learned that Irving Pitchell was set to direct a movie called Tomorrow is Forever. Natasha did a screen test, but didn't cry when she was supposed to. So Maria later calls the director and says Natasha has been crying for days about it and desperately just wants another chance. So Natasha's given a second screen test. And right before, Maria pulls her aside, takes out a a jar that has a live butterfly in it, and rips the wings off the butterfly. Oh my god! Natasha, of course, breaks down. Her mother shoves her in front of the camera and shouts, She's ready! (laughs) The director was moved by the performance and would later describe Natasha's tears as, quote, seeming to come from the depths of some divine despair. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He hit the nail on the head there. Yeah. He said he knew in that moment that Natasha was meant to be in movies. So seven-year-old Natasha Gurdon was officially cast as the German orphan Margaret Ludwig in the post-World War II film. And while Natasha Gurdon won the part, it was officially Natalie Wood who would play the role. Studio executives decided that Nat- Natasha sounded too Russian and that the last name Gurdon was difficult to pronounce. I've been doing it for several minutes just fine. Or maybe I haven't. We'll see. Uh, <laughs> so they changed her name to Natalie Wood as an homage to director Sam Wood, who did like A Night at the Opera and Pride of the Yankees. Uh, Natalie Wood's first day on set was March 30th, 1945, and her first scene was with Orson Welles. Oh, wow. Natalie appeared in two more films in the next two years before appearing in one of her most well-known works, Miracle on 34th Street, in 1947. Following that success, Natalie went on to do 14 more movies and two TV shows over the next five years. Oh, wow. Yeah. By the age of nine, Natalie had been named the most exciting juvenile motion picture star of the year by Parents Magazine. After her father suffered a series of heart attacks and could no longer work, Natalie became the sole breadwinner of her family at the age of 12. Oof. A fact that her mother wouldn't let Natalie forget. Oh, boy. For one thing, Natalie wasn't allowed to run or play outside because if she got hurt, she wouldn't be able to work. Oh, Mm. this poor woman. And once, after a particularly bad audition, her mother walked her outside and said, quote, Well, that didn't go very well, did it? No new shoes for your sister. (laughs) Despite her mother's negative reaction, Natalie actually did get that part. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So Natalie would go on to act in 74 projects, including well-known films like West Side Story, Splendor in the Grass, Gypsy, Rebel Without a Cause, and Love with the Proper Stranger. She was also a hit on the small screen with TV movies such as The Cracker Factory, From Here to Eternity, and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. 
by the age of 25, Natalie had been nominated for three Academy Awards, which made her, along with Teresa Wright, the youngest person to receive three Oscar nominations. The record would be broken in 2013 by Jennifer Lawrence and in 2017 by Saoirse Ronan uh, when they received their third nomination at the age of 23. God, what have I done with my life? Oh, you can't. You can't you know, go down that you know, road. No, nope, nope. you just can't. Nope. And while Natalie never took home an Oscar, she did, however, win three Golden Globes, including one for Best Actress in a Television Series Drama in 1980 for From Here to Eternity. Oh. Hollywood Awards show side note. Hey! She hasn't given up on the side notes, And folks. I don't want you to. Yeah. And I swear it's my goal to name them weirdly every time, so... Buckle up. Uh, the Henrietta Award for World Film Favorite was awarded to one actor and one actress for 29 years, starting in 1951. It was awarded to such stars as Deborah Kerr, Rock Hudson, Doris Day, Marilyn Monroe, Grace Kelly, Sidney Poitier, Jane, or Charles Bronson, and the ultimate queen herself, Ms. Julie Andrews. Oh, yeah. I love her so much. Yeah. Multiple winners of the award include three times for both Jane Fonda and Robert Redford and four times for Sophia Loren and Barbara Streisand. Hmm. Natalie won in 1966 along with the super dreamy Mr. Paul Newman. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about time machine worthy. Well, yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. The Henrietta Award was last awarded in 1980 to Jane Fonda and Roger Moore. Huh. The, that award is two of the eight awards that have been retired at the Golden Globes. Two other retired awards are the New Star of the Year Actor and Actress hmm. that were given out between 1948 and 1983, which Natalie won in 1957. Huh. So not only does she like to teach you about crimes... She likes to just be educational in general. Listen, I didn't know any of that. I'd never heard of those awards before. And I'm an awards show junkie. Well, you know what? I didn't know either. And it's all because of you. Because of you. I was like, I I, I, I was going to, I was like, how much longer can I go? I know all the crime facts that you gotta give. Because of you, I know about the Golden Globes and the awards they canceled. (laughs) All I'm going to say to that, look out, Weird Al. (laughs) She's coming for you. I'm coming for him. He seems nice. He seems (laughs) so nice. I could never. I could never. I'm, I'm not kidding. Uh... My oldest two children have gone through phases, mm. uh, not which seems right because it's approximately around the same age uh, for both of them. But they've gone through phases in their life where they think, "Oh my God, has anyone heard this genius?" And it's like, "I, you're not the first ones." But yeah, it's just it's amazing how much at that age all of a sudden it just clicks for them and yeah, that's so funny. They realize that it's like uh, the dude's a genius. Yeah. We'll say it what it is. Uh so when when she became pregnant with her first child in 1970, Natalie went into semi-retirement as she wanted to be a full stay-at-home mom. 
and on September 29, 1970, she gave birth to Natasha Gregson, who would later follow in her mother's footsteps and become an actress, with credits including Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Urban Legend, and the 2001 TV series Pasadena. Oh! Natalie was described as larger than life, incredibly generous, devoted, and loving. She was smart, empowered, and formidable. At the age of just 20, this icon pushed back on Hollywood standards to try and gain some control from the studios. At the time, actors were never allowed to choose what roles they took. Instead, they were assigned movies by producers. She went on strike, and the head of Warner Brothers Studios eventually gave in and let her choose at least one movie a year. Her first movie to choose, West Side Story. Wow. Natalie also used her clout to choose Robert Redford as her leading man in Inside Daisy Clover in 1965. The pair attended, uh, the pair both attended Van Nuys High School, but wouldn't become friends until years later. Redford was known on Broadway for Sunday in the Park and Sunday in New York and Barefoot in the Park, but wasn't known in Hollywood at the time. But Natalie pushed for him to be her co-star which fully jump-started Redford's career, uh, and he would later refer to Natalie as, quote, a good soul. Oh. As you may recall uh, from my earlier side note, Robert Redford won the Henrietta Award for film favorite three times. He also won a BAFTA for Best Actor in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and an Academy Award for Best Director for Ordinary People. Again, Natalie is the one who brought him to, got him to Hollywood and made them all pay attention because they did not want him. That's so in interesting. That movie. And she was like, I want, it's, it's him or nothing. And Good they went, her. okay, oh, she's a gem. There's a reason that I called her an icon and really stamped on it when I, when I said you it. You put a so little stank on it for sure. I did. Yeah. I did. I tried. Yeah. Uh, at the time of her death, Natalie was filming the $15 million sci-fi movie Brainstorm, co-starring Christopher Walken, and preparing to make her theatrical debut in a stage production of Anastasia in February of 1982. Proving that she was ahead of her time, Natalie pushed for equal pay in Hollywood and for mental health advocacy. At one point, uh, she had it added to her contract that she would be able to receive time off so she could see her therapist. That's extremely uh, advanced, kind of evolved, mm-hmm. I think is maybe the word I was thinking of, um, for that time. Oh, 100%. Yeah. She, was, uh, she was very, very open about therapy at the time, uh, referring to it simply as analysis. Mm-hmm. She stated on numerous occasions that it saved her life. Her actual quote was, quote, if it weren't for analysis, I'd probably be dead. Wow. She went through enough really some pretty terrible stuff throughout her youth that she was at a point uh, where she was going daily. Wow. And being very open about like, this is something people should be doing. And uh, I, I mean... Again, some may be like, she was this beautiful movie star. She had it all. Why did she need therapy? And I think it's just, she's such a great um, example of just that unnecessary stigma. Everybody kind of puts on therapy. Yeah. Um, And also the idea of like, yes, she was beautiful and she was smart and she had all these amazing things. But the things that she went through that nobody knew about, it's like, you don't know what somebody else is going through. So you never do. 
You never Choose kind, know. right? Yep, absolutely. Uh, so while the world watched Natalie Wood grow up, most weren't aware of just how dark and tragic her formative years actually were. Enter Natalie's mother. Oh, no. She went by many names, but since most people seem to call her Maria, we're just going to follow suit. So Maria, a woman that was once described by her own granddaughter as, quote, narcissistic, controlling, and possessive. Mm. I'd make an adorable, how do you solve a problem like Maria? <laughs> uh, joke, but there, this woman's issues were anything but adorable. The second movie that Natalie made, uh, where she was credited as Natalie Wood for the first time, uh, and there was that scene where she needed to cry and she couldn't. And so, you know, because crying is meant for well-trained actors or, you know, old softies. Because the older you get, the closer those emotions get to the surface, kids. So uh, for our young listeners out there, brace yourselves for that. It hits you and you don't expect it. You know what else does? The facial hair. It's... It, 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 it's unfair. I was laying in bed with my lovely boyfriend the other day and he's like, there's something oh, on no. your face and it literally, it was a thick black hair that he pulled from my chin and I felt seen in a way that I never wanted to. <laughs> you know? How does it get, and I know Leslie Seiler, friend of the podcast, she has jokes about this in her, in her stand-up, but it's like, how does that happen? Like, how is it like it's not there and then all of a sudden there's an inch of black hair on my face and I've never seen it. It's... Oh, anyway, my point is, is that, yeah, there's lots of things that happen, kids. There's lots of things they don't tell you about. They don't tell you about. No. And then you get there and you're like this. Well, that's why they have us. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> True crime and what it's like <laughs> to mature as a woman. There you go. Well, I guess this is growing up. Thank you. No, I don't know. This might be the most song lyrics we have referenced. And we're towing a line of how much we're we going to have to pay. You're right. You're uh, right. But also, for those You're of right. you wondering, Blanche was a Tom DeLong gal. Lauren was a Mark Hoppus. Continue. Yes. Yeah, that's... If you don't get that reference, Google it. It didn't take much to figure those out. I'll tell you that. Those, uh, yep. those came... Very honestly. Naturally. Yep. Very naturally. Mm -hmm. uh, so we've already talked about Maria's awful stunt with the butterfly. Oh, God. To get uh, her four-year-old to cry on set. Once she just, once she moved the family to Santa, Santa Monica, Maria printed an article in the Santa Rosa newspaper that said, six-year-old girl going to Hollywood for roles in movies. Little Natasha Gurdon of Mr. and Mrs. Nicholas Gurdon will leave shortly, probably for the first week, um, for Hollywood and her chance at a motion picture career. Selected by director Irving Pitchell for a possible part in a medal for Benny, uh, the little blonde, dark-eyed girl will probably be given a screen test upon arrival in the film center. If finally selected for the role... Her light tresses will be darkened to fit into the proposed role of a Mexican child. Oh, boy. Pitchell met Natasha when he was here last summer directing In Happy Land, 
While he was here last week viewing proposed locations for the production company, Pitchell visited Natasha and proposed the part in the new picture. For one thing, fuck off, Maria. No, he didn't. (laughs) Maria tried to get her daughter an audition for that movie. uh, And the director was like, being a child star is not glamorous. It's not something you want to... I just... She's such a sweet, lovely child. Just let her be a child. But of course, Maria didn't care what toll it might take on her daughter. Maria's own dreams of being an actress had been dashed long ago, so this was her chance. Natalie once uh, told her mother she wanted to be a ballerina, and Maria said, quote, No, ballerinas don't live very long, and it's bad for the heart. You know what else is bad for the heart? Having this woman as your mother. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I don't know. Witnessing a mutilation of a living being at the age of four? I'd say that's not great for the heart either. Mm -hmm. There was also, I may not have it in my notes, or this may be the first time I'm saying it in advance. Um, There was also a time she needed to cry. I believe it was the butterfly was for the screen test. And then for when she was filming the movie, she had to cry in that scene. Right. And you can't use the same thing again. She'll be expecting that. So she just in graphic detail reminded her of that time their beloved dog ran into a street and was hit by a car in front of the in front of the child. There's a reason why she was in daily therapy, okay? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Wow, that's awful. Yes. Have we uh, talked about Michael Landon? Have I ever told you this story? No. There was a story about Michael Landon because he used to direct a lot on Little House on the Prairie and obviously there was a lot of child, oh, okay. children, child actors on that. And I can't remember who it was, but I saw this interview. It stuck with me to this day. I watched this when I was a kid. Um, but they said if there was a scene where one of the kids would have to act, he would go to the child because he worked with them for years. He played their father on the show. He'd known them for years. He would go and hug them and tell them how much he loved them and like try and, and make them cry like positively which I thought was really beautiful. And I know it's still manipulative and weird. Believe me, do not get your children into the business. It is <laughs> really, trust me. But I did think it was, you know, as, a, as an antithesis to this terrible method where it's like, hey, think about all this death. He was just trying to say, like, I love you so much and I'm so glad you're here and you're so talented. And then the actors they were talking to, they were like, they would start to cry because they were just like, oh, that's so nice. And then they'd shoot the scene. That's nice. It's nice. I didn't know where we were going to go with that. Like, I was concerned (laughs) that we were going to take a turn. And then it was going to be like, what has he done? You know, like that, because that's where we're at. (laughs) Highway to heaven, more like highway to hell. (laughs) It's just, that's where we're at. Of course. Like, as far as a lot of Hollywood goes, where it's like, you hear a name, you see a name trending, and you're like, what now? I know. What what they do. What they, what do. they do. It's going to be something. But yeah, and anyway. Every once in a while, it's something beautiful. That anecdote like, always oh, okay. stuck with me. And it is. And I mean, again, it's also just illustrating that that while I don't think it's good to manipulate children to cry on camera ever, um, there is a better way, is the point, if you're trying to get a mm. child to do something and they are having a, yes. a, t- a tough time. Again, do not get your children into this business. Trust me. Yes. <laughs> Uh, so Maria admitted to a publicist once that she threatened Natalie in Russian with extra piano practice if she made any mistakes on set. Oh. Natalie wasn't even allowed to talk with extras on set. 
She was only allowed to speak with adults. And even then, she was only allowed to speak with directors, writers, and producers. Oh, my Lord. Natalie was always kept isolated. When she had to attend school at the studio, Maria demanded that Natalie have a private tutor in a separate classroom. And even then, Maria always had to sit in on the class. At one point, when Natalie was only eight years old, she was filming three different movies and fully supporting her family financially. And one morning, she woke up completely paralyzed. Now, most really, parents, like physically, physically paralyzed, physically paralyzed. Wow. Now, most parents in this moment would see their child's psychosomatic paral- paral- paralysis as a warning sign that maybe your child is stressed and overwhelmed. But Maria just dismissed the problems and said, quote, she's always frail and subject to small illnesses. And when she does not have a real illness, she just imagines one. Okay. Wow. Mm-hmm. wow. And I know that our very own Judge Doc over there uh, would like some background on Maria for the sake of psychological profiling. I would. So Maria has her daughter Olga in 1928. Things don't work out with her husband at the time. They divorce, and six months later, Maria uh, is pregnant with Natasha. Now, she was dating a sea captain at the time, but then quickly set her sights on Nikolai Zakarenko, because as Maria said, quote, all my girlfriends want him, and I thought, well, if they want him, I have to get him. Wow. Which paints a picture. It does. So she's dating, uh, she's dating both of these guys, ends up pregnant. The assumption is the baby is Nikolai's, so they get married. February 1938, Maria then gets super close with a rich Russian couple named Theodore and Helen Loy and asks them to be godparents of her second baby. I don't know if there were even godparents of her first one, but she wanted to make sure her this second child that she was told by a gypsy would be known and loved throughout the world. She wanted to make sure this kid was set up if anything should happen to her. So get this kid some rich godparents. Maria then even allowed Helen to name the baby and she chose Natalia. Maria's youngest daughter, Svetlana, who is known more as Lana, uh, referred to Maria as a pathological liar. Wow. Other people have described her as colorful, devious, a disturbed genius, and, quote, a feverishly imaginative woman who lived in a world of her own invention, only occasionally punctuated by the truth. Wow. Maria would give multiple stories of her own childhood. It is believed she was born somewhere in Siberia. Maria claimed at times that she grew up in luxury on a palatial Siberian estate with a Chinese cook, three governesses, and a nanny for every child. She would also claim that her mother was related to the Romanovs, Russia's royal family. Maria also told her children when they were little that her parents took her to China, where she became a Chinese princess, although she never bothered to explain how that supposedly happened. Uh, and then huh. Maria told Lana that she was born to gypsy parents who left her on a hillside where she was found by another family who raised her. She then also once said she was of French descent. <laughs> as far as I can tell, not a single one of those is true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
I mean, it all sounds to me like maybe someone had a particularly rough childhood. They spent their life dreaming of a better life to the point where they lost sight of what the truth was. Or else she had a boring childhood and wanted to make herself seem more interesting. Right. Shortly after Natalie's death, Maria said, quote, God created her, but I invented her. Ooh. Mm -hmm. Spoken like a Disney villain. My gosh. Yeah. And the best way that I found someone uh, described Maria is, quote, her consuming obsession with Natasha was the one thing no one ever questioned about her. <laughs> Interesting. Mm-hmm. Maria also taught Natalie to stay silent and to, quote, not rock the boat. So over the years, Natalie would continue to keep secrets in order to protect others, even secrets that caused Natalie immense pain. <sighs> Maria was determined to make Natalie successful no matter what it took. She was even known for throwing Natalie at much older men in an attempt to boost her career. Such as when Maria allegedly pushed 15-year-old Natalie into a sexual relationship with 38-year-old Frank Sinatra. Oh, boy. One of N Natalie's friends went so far as to say, quote, her mother was a pimp. Wow. For those who may need it, please consider this your trigger warning. So when Natalie was invited to meet with an older, well-established actor at the Chateau Marmont Hotel, M Maria didn't think twice. Maria and her youngest daughter, Lana, even drove Natalie to the hotel and sat in the car and waited for hours. This man lured Natalie to the Chateau, asking her to read for a part. However, the script was just a ruse. The man said he liked young girls and that he always wanted to, this is a quote, so forgive me, Fuck a teenager. Oh, boy. Natalie grabbed her purse, headed for the door, but he grabbed her and dragged her across the room. The attack was described as brutal, violent, and verbally abusive. He told her if she told anyone, it would be the last thing she ever did. When Natalie returned to the car, she said nothing, but later had to confide in her mother that she was violently raped so that she could be taken to a hospital in order to treat the pain and stop the bleeding. Oh. And from my understanding, this was days later. And this was, this, this wasn't Frank Sinatra. This was not. Okay. No. We're gonna, we don't know who officially he is, but we have some theories. Okay, got you. So Maria's response to this whole thing, she was, quote, simply delighted that Natalie had become close to such a powerful industry figure. Oh, boy. Yep. No police report was ever filed, as Natalie was too scared to tell anyone. Yeah. And since only a few of Natalie's closest friends know who the rapist was, it has never been stated publicly. All we know is that he was a powerful actor at the time, married, and that Natalie considered him to be one of her screen idols at the time. So it has been stated publicly... Or it has not been, sorry. But there are a lot of rumors. Allegedly. Thank you. That it's Kirk Douglas. Interesting. At the time, Natalie was 16 years old and Kirk was 38. So he was older than her, a powerful actor, and married. So it could be Kirk, but again, allegedly. So he matches the description 
But is he capable of a brutal attack? Well, that I don't know. All I know is he admitted to cheating on both of his wives numerous times, but has never admitted to an attack on Natalie. But if I may quote Kirk Douglas himself from his 1988 autobiography, quote, I'm a son of a bitch, plain and simple. <laughs> Again, if you just Google Natalie would rape, the only person that comes up is Kirk Douglas. But again, allegedly. Because, of course. You know, it was said that the rapist sat near Natalie during an award ceremony and smiled at her like nothing happened. Keep in mind at this point, Natalie is still in high school. Oof. So she ends up falling in love with a boy named Jimmy Williams from high school, which is what we want for her, something positive. Things start to get intense by January 1954, and Maria starts to get a little worried about it. She was so afraid of Natalie having sex that Maria told Natalie her body was so small that she'd die if she ever gave birth. Oh my god. She also warned Natalie that if she had sex with a well-endowed man... She was so small that a penis would puncture her internal organs. Which is a wild horror story that you'd expect to hear from some kid at camp as opposed to any adult, yeah. especially your parent. Oh, boy. Yeah. So Maria also tried to buy off Natalie's best friend, Marianne, saying that she would give her whatever she wanted if she broke up Natalie and Jimmy. At the time, Natalie was 15 and Jimmy was almost 17. Jimmy gave her an engagement ring in February, but when Natalie wore the ring home, Maria lost her mind and had a massive fight with Natalie, which ended with Maria driving Natalie to Jimmy's house to give the ring back. A month later, a friend asked Jimmy if he could ask Natalie out, saying that, uh, Maria had asked him to ask because she needed to go out with other people. Oh, my God. Days later, when Jimmy and Natalie were on their last date, she said they needed to date other people. That same shit her mother, mother was peddling. Yeah. Jimmy went home that night and shot himself with a rifle. Oh, my God. And while the blast wasn't fatal, it did cause permanent physical damage. And during his recovery, Maria refused to let Natalie visit him. For the record, Jimmy did end up finding love. They've been married for 45 years. They have two children and two grandchildren. He does not regret things that happened with Natalie, but also would not give up his life, even for her. Right. So there's wow. that. Wow. Yeah. So now it has to be said that in 1955, 16-year-old Natalie had an affair with director Nicholas Ray, who was 44 Oof. and married. At the time, Natalie was trying to transition from being a child star to being taken seriously as an adult actress, and she felt the best way to do that was get the part of Judy in Rebel Without a Cause. However, Nick, director Nicholas Ray wasn't as convinced as Natalie, plus he was considering actresses such as Debbie Reynolds and Jane, Debbie Reynolds and Jane Mansfield. Sometime between the first interview and her first screen test 10 days later, they had become lovers. I don't know if this was something she chose for herself or something her mother pushed on her. I'm not for sure. 
But despite the affair, Ray just didn't think that Natalie was the right fit for the part. So one night, Natalie ends up in a drunken car crash with her friend Dennis Hopper. Oh! Pop shot! Pop quiz hot shot. There it is. <laughs> Shoot the hostage. Any excuse to mention speed. Thank you. We love you, Keanu. So much. Natalie and Dennis were taken to the hospital where a doctor called Natalie a goddamn juvenile delinquent. So Natalie calls director Ray and says, did you hear what he called me, Nick? He called me a goddamn juvenile delinquent. Now do I get the part? A short time later, Ray writes a memo to Warner Brothers that read, quote, we just spent three days testing 32 kids. There is only one girl who has shown the capacity to play Judy, and she is Natalie Wood. Wow. So she got that part. And apparently at the time, Natalie was also seeing Dennis Hopper. And when Maria found out about the two affairs, she was furious. So I guess, yeah, Maria did not know about the other one. Read your notes, Christy. Um, she went directly to Warner Brothers with her complaint, except Maria was no dummy, and she knew making a complaint against a big-name director would be career suicide. So she only complained about 18-year-old Dennis Hopper being involved with her 16-year-old daughter, said nothing about Ray, even though Ray's affair clearly was worse, and, uh, Dennis Hopper is the one who got in major shit, and they never knew about the married man who was like more than twice her age. So then Natalie meets 18-year-old actor Scott Marlowe. Scott was dark, handsome, intellectual, and Natalie was instantly captivated. Things got so serious that they got engaged with the possibility of getting married on Natalie's 18th birthday when she would no longer need her parents' consent. On July 2nd, Natalie's engagement was announced publicly, with Natalie being quoted as saying, I've never loved any other man. Maria? Furious. She goes to the publicists at Warner Brothers to say Scott was only using Natalie to further his own career, as he too had dreams of becoming an actor. And whatever Maria said must have worked, because in mid-July, Warner Brothers' publicity department issued numerous press releases claiming Natalie was demanding that Scott be cast in her next movie and signed to a contract. Neither of these things were true. But the onslaught was enough to destroy the relationship between Scott and Natalie. Scott later said it destroyed him and that Maria saw him and Jimmy Williams as a threat to her possession of Natalie. On Natalie's 18th birthday, instead of marrying the boy she loved, she had her first date with 26-year-old actor Robert Wagner, known to friends as RJ. The pair attended the premiere for his new movie, The Mountain, which also starred Spencer Tracy. I saw an interview where Natalie and RJ were talking about their first date, and they acted like it was such a sweet thing, where she had a crush on him when she was a kid, and he asked her out several years later to this premiere, but it turns out the date was actually arranged by Warner Brothers. <laughs> yep, there it is. Now, there are conflicting stories about this next moment. RJ claims that on December 6th, 1957, he made reservations at a Beverly Hills restaurant named Romanoff's, had champagne, and inside of Natalie's glass was a ring with the inscription, Marry Me. Natalie's sister Lana, however, claims that RJ showed up at the house 
with champagne and two glasses. And when Natalie looked in the glass, there was a ring. So they're similar enough, but I'm just dying to know if he actually proposed in public at a fancy restaurant or quietly at her house. Uh, Natalie and RJ got married 22 days later in Scottsdale, Arizona, which feels like a real whirlwind to me. Uh, They took a private train car to Chicago for their honeymoon. But I mean, I guess technically they were together. They went on their first date in July 1956, got engaged in December of 57. And then 22 days later, got right. married. Okay, so they had felt... been together for a bit. They'd been together for like a year and a half. But it doesn't it feel Ish. like like they were very famous at this time, right? She certainly was. She was she was much more famous than he was at the time. So if he, he was there. Yeah. If he had proposed to her in public, I feel like that would have been like huge news story. Like I feel like there would be proof of that if he did it. That's a good point. I don't think I ever saw anything. Yeah. But again, a lot of, he just, a lot of the video I've seen of Robert Wagner, every time he speaks, you can feel where it's like, you know, like, you know he's putting something on. Mm. He's not just being, like, he's being asked a question and he can't just answer the question as himself, he has to answer as whatever persona he seems to think he is. Well, she has a pattern, and it's <laughs> probably based in the <laughs> roots of a relationship with that mother. Doesn't take a therapist to tell you that. Well, listen, let's take a quick break, grab another drink, hit the can, and we will be right back to talk more. Natalie Wood on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails, Famous Fatalities Edition. Healthy snacks have a bad reputation, and let's be honest, most don't taste very good. They don't fill you up, and they certainly don't satisfy your cravings. This episode is sponsored by Monk Pack, who makes snacks that taste like our favorite sugary treats, but with one gram of sugar or less. Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars contain one gram of sugar or less, two to three grams of net carbs, and they're only 150 calories. They're great for anyone following a keto lifestyle and the perfect snack for anyone who's trying to eat better or cut back on sugar and carbs without sacrificing taste. Now, for those who follow me on social media, you know that my boyfriend is a very fit man. He lives on bars, okay? And he was blown away by the Monk Pack Bars. We got sent a case of them. And let's just say after the first day, there's only a couple left. I'm not kidding. Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars have a perfect balance of sweet and salty, a crunch from whole nuts and seeds, but still manage to be soft and chewy. They come in delicious flavors like sea salt dark chocolate, caramel sea salt, and peanut butter dark chocolate. Now, when I asked my boyfriend, he said it's the macadamia white chocolate that does it for him and that he did not believe that there was less than a gram of sugar in there. He said he must have read the label six or seven times because he thought I was pranking him. They're perfect for a quick snack to satisfy your sweet tooth without guilt. Enjoy Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars as a quick breakfast while running errands or after a workout. In addition to being keto-friendly, the bars are also gluten-free, plant-based, and non-GMO, with no soy, trans fat, sugar alcohols, or artificial colors. You can also sign up for a subscription to your favorite flavors, which saves you 10% on every order and ships them to you automatically. Getting them delivered on a regular basis can be a complete game-changer in your effort to eat healthier. So try it for yourself and you'll see. 
We have a special deal for our listeners, 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack.com and entering our code TCC at checkout. And Monk Pack is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll exchange the product or refund your money, whichever you prefer. To get started, go to monkpack.com, that's M-U-N-K-P-A-C-K.com, and select any product, then enter the code TCC at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. Monk Pack, delicious, nutritious food you can count on. We thank them for sponsoring this podcast. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails, Famous Fatalities Edition. Obviously, we are talking all things Natalie Wood. When we left off, we were talking about Robert Wagner, their very brief engagement. They honeymooned in Chicago, and then what happened? (laughs) Well, the media... And the public loved Natalie and RJ. They were like our generation's Brad oh. and Jen or or Benefer. And let me say, I am screaming that Benefer is happening again. Learn from your mistakes, I JLo. Love um it. I could not be happier yeah. for what's happening. Only three good things have come out of this pandemic. One, I'll say it, true crime and cocktails. Yep. Two, the true crew. Thank you. And three, Benefer 2.0. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I have to agree. I can't That's lie. That's it. I can't That's lie. It. Yeah. That's it. I, I, I'm so happy for both of them. The fact that she's always smiling, it's like, good for you. Oh, yeah. Good for you. Uh, so Natalie... And RJ are seen as one of Hollywood's golden couples. And we're talking the perfect couple. Unfortunately, things weren't exactly perfect behind closed doors. In June of 1961, Natalie was just months away from becoming a massive star with the release of West Side Story and Splendor in the Grass. RJ's career, on the other hand, had hit a bit of a lull. Her career sounded like fireworks. His sounded like crickets. (laughs) I like that. Oh, boy. Uh, But RJ claims, quote, that wasn't a factor in ending our marriage. The pressure put on her and her career caused that. Which feels like he fully blames Natalie for the split. Well, we'll get into more on that split later in the show. But we know for sure that the pressure put on them to be this perfect couple was almost stifling. And after two years, they were just kind of going through the motions, pretending to be happy. And as Natalie put it, quote, how do you separate reality from illusion when you have been trapped in make-believe all your life? Wow. I know. Powerful. Right? Again, I think I'm in love with Natalie Wood now, (laughs) Mm -hmm. is what's happened. Mm -hmm. So Natalie and RJ announced their separation in a joint press release June 20th, 1961, and divorced 10 months later in April of 1962. After the divorce, Natalie started seeing her Splendor in the Grass co-star, Warren Beatty. What was that, Blanche? (laughs) You always liked Dick Tracy. I did. I was obsessed (laughs) with that movie. I don't know what it is. But I was I obsessed. have a few <laughs> theories, <laughs> namely one. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. And and his girlfriend was a redhead in that, I believe. Oh my god, it's all so clear. <laughs> I just I mean the true joke is I remember and this is just a very quick aside because this is what happens. I was about to have my second child. And it was a it was supposed to be a planned C-section. There's a lot of reasons, doesn't matter. And so the hospital I had to come in the night before and then spend the night and then in the morning would have the C-section. And so the hospital was like, once I came in and I registered and I was all ready to go, they're like, you know what? We'll give you a pass. You can leave for a few hours, but you have to be back by like 9 or 10 p.m. for the night. Because you they have to make sure you're not having any certain fluids or foods or whatever after a certain time. So it was like, but so we need you in so we can make check on you for the night. So I said, fine. So I was like, I've got a few hours. And my husband was like, well, what do you want to do? You have hours. And I was very, very, very pregnant. So I wasn't going to do like, I wasn't going to be like, let's go do something fun. It was like, no, I'm exhausted. Just walk into the car. So I was like, what do you want to do? And I was like, honestly, what I want right now more than anything, we got McDonald's and we went home and we watched Dick Tracy. <laughs> And I'm fairly certain on that kid's one year, one first birthday, I celebrated again with Dick Tracy. Listen. But, yeah. And then the true joke is around 3 a.m. I woke up in intense labor. And so I ended up, we had to rush the C-section along because I wasn't meant to go in labor, but that child could not wait. My appointment was six, seven hours away and they suddenly had to get it going because oh, it was funny. yeah so I wasn't supposed to experience labor that time but I did right because I did very intense labor with my first one so yeah what a joke what uh, a joke <laughs> random fun fact about a side yeah. note fun fact my first agent was a man named Ray who sadly passed while he was representing me I was very young and okay. his roster of clients got taken over by a man named Warren Beatty. Oh. Not the same one. <laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> anyway, that's it. <laughs> Any chance to bring up Warren Beatty? Yeah. Well, I'm learning that now. I think I always knew. I think I always knew. You did. So I can just see his chiseled jaw. Yeah. What's happening? I know. So. Natalie starts seeing Warren Beatty. There was a rumor their relationship is actually what caused the divorce. However, it's not true. Mm. And with his marriage dead and buried and his career with a foot in the grave, wow. <laughs> RJ decides he's going to leave the country. And I'm sure the fact that his beautiful ex-wife is being photographed everywhere she goes with her also beautiful new boyfriend... Uh, I'm sure that plays a factor in it. So RJ decides he's going to leave for Europe. And he calls Natalie and asks her, does she want to go with him? And no surprise there, she says no. Because unlike his career, hers was actually heating up. <laughs> and I realize I'm being very harsh about him. But if you listeners know me at all, you know there's a reason. It always pays off. It's because I know how this ends. So RJ goes to Rome for a few years, and while there, he marries actress Marion Marshall in July 1963, just 15 months after his divorce. 
They had a daughter named Katie in 1964 and then divorced in October of 1971. Natalie and Warren lasted two years in what Natalie called, quote, a collision from start to finish. (laughs) Other celebrities that Natalie Wood has been linked to over the years, actors David Niven Jr., Tom Courtney, Michael Caine, producer Arthur Lowe Jr., and shoe manufacturer Ladislav Blotnik. Hmm. Natalie also had a brief fling with Elvis Presley. Oh. To which Natalie would later say, quote, he can sing, but he can't do much else. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Yeah. In 1966, Natalie met Richard Gregson through her friend Robert Redford. At the time, Richard was Redford's agent before becoming a producer. Natalie and Richard end up getting married three years later in May of 1969 with Robert Redford as Richard's best man. Cute. When they married, Richard had children from a previous marriage and Natalie did her best to spend time with them. But when the pair welcomed Natasha on September 29th, 1970, Natalie's focus zeroed in on being a mother. Suddenly, Richard felt that she wasn't devoting enough time to his other children, and then later admitted that he felt that Natalie loved Natasha so much, there wasn't any room for him. So how did Richard handle that situation? By having an affair with Natalie's secretary. Ah! (laughs) I knew it was going to be an affair, but didn't realize it'd be someone so close to her. Oh, boy. Yep. After a short-lived romance with future California Governor Jerry Brown in January 1972, Natalie reunited with RJ at an event and their romance rekindled. They married a second time less than six months later in July 1972 aboard a yacht named the Rambling Rose. At this point, RJ had his eight-year-old daughter Katie from his second marriage and Natalie had her two-year-old daughter, Natasha. Then on March 9th, 1974, RJ and Natalie added Courtney to their blended family, and everything seemed to be back to the perfect relationship that they had originally had when they first got married ten years earlier. Now, also, some retired FBI agent claimed in 2013 that he had a four-year-long affair with Natalie Wood in the 70s, But they didn't disclose their romance because it would harm her film career and his FBI work. To which I say, one, how is that going to affect your FBI work? Two, the only people carrying his story are tabloids like the National Enquirer. Three, he has absolutely no photo proof or any proof whatsoever of this affair. And four, I am terrified that the FBI is letting delusional people be agents. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to skip ahead in our story to Thanksgiving weekend, 1981. RJ and Natalie host friends and family for Thanksgiving and then invite a few people for a adult weekend away on their boat, the Splendor. Boat naming side note. I don't know if I'll ever use that one again. So I don't know when they bought the boat, but they decided to call it The Splendor after Natalie's hit movie, Splendor in the Grass, 
but Natalie decided to add a U to the title of the boat or to the boat's name so that it wouldn't remind RJ so much about the t- about her time with the movie and Warren Beatty. Oh jeez. Which is weird. Uh so the boat gets named after a big Natalie hit and the dinghy well it got named the Prince Valiant which was a movie RJ was in in an early stage of his career. I just love that the 60-foot <laughs> yacht acknowledges her successes and he gets the little dinghy to represent his. And I could not be happier about that. Also going on at the time, in their second marriage, Natalie and RJ made a promise to each other that only one of them would be working at a time so their children would have a more stable home life. Well, RJ was off in Hawaii shooting Heart to Heart, and Natalie was in North Carolina filming Brainstorm. It would be the first time that no parent was at home. They had a lovely nanny. They weren't alone. Right. And the longest time that RJ and Natalie had been apart. So tensions were probably brewing long before they stepped on that boat. So they have this big dinner party and invite people on their weekend away. However, being a holiday weekend, most declined. So the only people who went on the boat were Natalie, RJ, Natalie's current co-star Christopher Walken, and the yacht skipper, Dennis Deverne. Now, unfortunately, we only know what happened that weekend by piecing together the stories from the three men. But wouldn't you know, all three men seem to have a different story for what happened over the course of the weekend. Apparently, the water was quite rough on Friday night, so much so that Natalie and the skipper Dennis went to shore and stayed at a hotel. Not only did the hotel staff confirm this, but it was also confirmed as Natalie put the rooms on her credit card. Based on the original statements that the three men initially gave to police, RJ mentioned nothing about Friday night. Walken implied that everyone stayed on the boat, and Dennis said, oh, all four of them slept on the boat. Wait, Dennis it, said that as well? Yeah. Dennis, but, but there's proof that he was in the hotel? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. In their second statements to police, they all admitted there was a disagreement about whether or not they should move the boat closer to shore and that Natalie decided to get a hotel room. On the Saturday night, the group went ashore to a restaurant called Doug's Harbor Reef around 7 p.m. They drank for several hours and had dinner. Dennis claims there was a simmering rage from RJ over inside jokes between Walken and Natalie even one of the wait staff would later say that it just seemed RJ wasn't drinking along with the group and that he seemed, quote, like a jealous schmoo. <laughs> schmoo? Yeah, I like it a lot. Wow. A young engaged couple that were also at the restaurant that night said that Natalie was very nice, very personable, but Wagner was pretty whacked. <laughs> they claimed that RJ was, quote, really out of it, swaying just so drunk. Oh. The staff also claimed that at one point Natalie threw a wine glass at the wall next to their table. Walken later claimed it was his fault as they were making a toast and he threw his glass down at the end like he always does at the end of a toast. And so Natalie did the same. Walken said that Natalie commented she was Russian and that's just what Russians do. Now, is that 
what Russians do? Because I know like plate smashing is a thing, is like a Greek thing, or I think at least movies have taught me that. Uh, but is smashing your glass at the end of a toast a thing at all? Let alone specifically a Russian thing? Like, it just felt weird to me. Yeah. Uh, the staff at the restaurant stand by their statements that Natalie was the only person to smash a glass, which feels like Walken was trying to hide any sort of animosity that was clearly there. Mm-hmm. The restaurant manager, Doug Whiting, claims that Wagner seemed irate with Natalie and many of the restaurant patrons noticed a lot of commotion at the table prior to Natalie throwing her glass. Around 10 p.m., Doug Whiting called the harbor master to advise them that four very drunk people were headed, to their, were headed their way and make sure they all got aboard the Splendor safely. Apparently, they get back to the boat and decide they need to have more drinks. And RJ finally really gets into it, complaining that Natalie was away from home too much. She was away from her kids and it was hurting their home life. Walken claims he got involved standing up for Natalie and saying she was an important person and this was her life. Walken claims he went out to get some air and when he returned, everyone was apologizing and everything just seemed fine. The men then claim that Natalie went to their stateroom around 10.30, 10.45 p.m., and the three of them had some wine. When R.J. went to the room, he noticed it was empty, and then he noticed the dinghy was gone. This was around somewhere between 10.45 and midnight. R.J. told police the last time he recalled seeing Natalie was 10.45 p.m. So you have a potentially heated evening with your wife, and then you find out she's not on the boat and the dinghy is missing. So what's your next move? Call for help? Search for her? Anything? Well, apparently RJ's answer to all three of those questions is... Nope! <laughs> they claim to have discovered her missing somewhere between 10.45 and midnight, and yet RJ didn't place an emergency call until 1.30 a.m. In a slurred voice... He used the ship's radio to say, quote, This is the Splendor. We need help. Somebody's missing from the boat. A search was immediately started, and at 7.44 a.m., Natalie's body was found floating face down about a mile south of the Splendor off an isolated cove known as Blue Cavern Point. She was wearing only a red and blue flannel nightgown and argyle socks. Her coat was found in the water, but not on her body. She was only 43 years old. The 13-foot dinghy, the Valiant, was found against the rocks about one and a quarter mile northeast of the Isthmus Pier, where Splendor was moored. The key was in the ignition, but it was in off position. The gear was in neutral, and the oars were tied down, so it appeared as though the dinghy had not been used. Interesting. Natalie's body was identified at 8.30 a.m., by Dennis Devern. Yes, you heard me correctly, folks. Robert Wagner sent the boat's skipper to identify his wife's body. Whoa. Mm-hmm. That's weird. Yeah. So, according to the autopsy report, there were numerous bruises on Natalie's forearms and legs, as well as a scratch on her neck, forehead, and left cheek. 
The location of, as well as the amount of bruising, seems to suggest a potential struggle prior to entering the water. Time of death was estimated as approximately midnight. At a press conference on December 1st, the coroner in Natalie's case, Dr. Thomas Noguchi, announced that cause of death was a tragic accident while slightly intoxicated. He went on to mention unexplained bruising on Natalie's face that may have rendered her temporarily unconscious before she hit the water. Dr. Noguchi said, quote, It appears that Miss Wood slipped when attempting to board the dinghy and accidentally fell into the water. She was unable to reboard the dinghy or the yacht and tragically perished. And that no evidence of foul play. Which again, feels like a lot to be able to say just two days into the investigation. Yeah. After that press conference, Dr. Noguchi was almost immediately fired and removed from the board or moved from office by the board of supervisors who were pressured by the lawyers of Frank Sinatra. (laughs) What? Apparently, Frank took great offense to Dr. Noguchi saying that Natalie had had too much to drink. He was also enraged that at the press conference, the doctor disclosed that RJ and Walken had a heated altercation before Natalie disappeared. And since Frank and RJ are apparently great friends, Frank wanted to shield RJ from any further scrutiny, suggesting in a scathing letter that coroners should, quote, be seen and not heard. Wow. On December 11th, 1981, less than two weeks after the incident, the L.A. Sheriff's Department ruled Natalie's death an accident. The death certificate listed accidental drowning as the official COD, and the case was closed. But wait, what is this? Oh, it's an update. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) What a moron. I love it. Just a boob. In 2011, a decade after the release of Suzanne Finstead's Natalie Wood biography, in which she revealed new evidence that suggested that Natalie's death was not an accident, the Los Angeles police reopened their investigation. Wow. In 2012, the L.A. County Coroner's Office amended Natalie's death certificate and changed the COD from accidental drowning to drowning and other undetermined factors. Wow. A statement was added to the document saying that how Natalie ended up in the water was, quote, not clearly established. On January 14th, 2013, the coroner's office added a 10-page addendum to Natalie's autopsy report stating that Natalie might have sustained some of those bruises on her body before she went in the water, but it could not be definitively determined. A new autopsy stated that Natalie had unexplained fresh bruising on her forearm, left wrist, right knee, a scratch on her neck, and a superficial scrape on her forehead. Officials now say it's possible that she was assaulted before she drowned. When the case was reopened, investigators tried to obtain the evidence that had been collected back in 1981. According to evidence logs, of the five items that were received as evidence on November 30th, 1981, the hair and pubic hair kits were disposed of in 1986, 
since the case was deemed an accident. But that's only two out of five of the evidence, so investigators went looking for the other three items. They couldn't be found. Quote, an exhaustive search to locate these items was conducted March 6, 2012, and none were located. Mm. Investigators assumed the items were disposed of, yet there were no notes made in any logs or in any of the reports. The items in question were a blood sample, a blood swatch, and a modified sexual assault kit. What? Which, why are they missing and what are you hiding? Yeah. That's my question. So February 2018, RJ was named person of interest in the ongoing investigation, but he has so far refused to cooperate. In 2020, a medical doctor and former intern of Thomas Noguchi, who did the original autopsy, stated the bruises were substantial and fitting for someone who gets thrown off a boat. He claims he made those same observations to the original coroner at the time, but he seemed to ignore those in his findings. Speaking of things that the original investigation ignored, John Payne, the order of the owner of a boat called the Capricorn, which was moored about 80 feet from the Splendor, said that he thought he heard a woman crying for help shortly after 11 p.m. He woke his fiance, and they distinctly both heard a woman's voice coming from the ocean. The voice said, somebody help me, please. I'm drowning. John, his fiance, and their son all recall hearing the voice and then heard a drunken man or multiple men's voices responding in mocking tones with, oh, don't worry, we'll help you, and hold your hat, we're coming to get you. But despite the men saying things like that, the woman kept screaming, which is a pretty good indicator that she needs help. So they, I mean, at this point, it is pitch black. They can't see anything. You don't know which direction officially things are really coming from. So they call the harbor master's office. There's no answer. They try calling out to the woman, but she never responds to them. They call someone in Avalon, which is nearby, um, who claimed to send a helicopter right away. They didn't. Mm. Uh, the harbor patrol also never answered their phone. Around 11.25 p.m., the woman's cries stop. John Payne and his family would later ask, how did someone on the Splendor not hear her scream when they were so much closer to that sound than we were? And why didn't police investigate the family's claims further? They took a statement in the original report and never spoke with them again or did anything about it. So we've got various people in this story who all have theories. We've got the coroner's theory. Thomas Noguchi, the coroner, believes that Natalie may have slipped while trying to board the dinghy. So for this to be true, Natalie would have had to have untied the dinghy herself, which doesn't seem likely. According to Dennis, Natalie didn't even know how to operate the dinghy. So why would she even bother getting into it? or untying it in the first place. And remember, it was midnight, so it would have been super dark out there, and Natalie feared dark water. Remember, before Natalie was born, 
Maria, her mother, went to a gypsy that told her her second child would be a great beauty known throughout the world. Well, in that same reading, the gypsy also said, beware of dark water. No. Natalie herself once said, I've always been terrified of water, dark water, seawater, river water, doesn't matter. Because, of course, her mother, after getting this this belief from this gypsy, just immediately was like, well, that's how we're living our lives. And just put such a fear of dark water into that poor girl. It's interesting that she was so interested in having a boat. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it, that's that's a strange choice, but... Um. I kind of wondered if it was a... It's more something he wanted. And she was like, a, you know what? Me too. Let's do it. And it was like, an, I'm going to love this because... You know how, like, when couples get together and they're together long enough, they start to kind of adapt. They they start to kind of, like, like some of the th- same things that they maybe didn't like before. And they start... They, yeah. they slowly start to become each other. Yeah, and they start using the you term know. we... We loved that movie, that stuff. Yeah, that 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 felt like really pointed, you know. <laughs> it's, it's it wasn't pointed at you. I just I always like, think that's so no. weird. Where I'm like, did you both love it? Like, I I mean, I, again, like I just feel like it's important to have your own thoughts and feelings and yeah. opinions. Look, when I when I hear a gentleman say we are pregnant, I wanna. Throw him in front of a train. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get it. You know, it's it. just, it's, it, you know, no, I can't. She's afraid of dark water. It's dark outside. She doesn't know how to use the dinghy. So if you're going outside and you're going to be surrounded by water, she was also only wearing a nightgown and socks. And so somehow they think she was going to get in the dinghy and go somewhere where was she going to go at that time of night in just a nightgown? I mean, come on. So I don't really believe in the doctor's theory. Right. Then we, then, then we have RJ's theory. So RJ published a memoir called Pieces of My Heart. He admits to, quote, becoming jealous and arguing with both Natalie and Walken. But he believes everything was sorted out when Natalie went to bed and that she must have been irritated by the sound of the dinghy hitting the boat. So she got up and tried to tighten the rope so the dinghy wouldn't move. During the documentary, which was produced by Natalie's daughter, Natasha, RJ is explaining his theory. And before he even says anything, Natasha jumps in and basically finishes his story. So it's obvious she has heard this so many times throughout her life. Right. What stuck out to me the most was Natasha's memory of how uh, Natalie hated the sound of the dinghy hitting the side of the boat and how that was just a thing constantly. And yet the skipper of the boat had never heard a complaint like that before. And also that's kind of his job. Like if you have a problem with something on the boat, you you tell him and he will go fix it. Yeah. She was also not shy and would be like, hey, I'd like some tea. Could you go get it? Right. And the skipper would go get it. So you can't tell me if she heard a noise, she'd be like, I'll just deal with it. It would be like, no, you go deal with it because it's the boat. She would have said it in a much nicer way, but still. Yeah. 
but and it was she's very sensitive to sound and just it sounds to me like Natasha had been told this story her whole life to the point where she's just like maybe a little bit gaslit as to what maybe happened. Totally. Dennis says again never heard a complaint about the dinghy before and that's how what he would have dealt with so it just feels like a story that RJ has concocted again the children were only 11 and 7 years old at the time so they probably would believe pretty much anything that their parent would have told them and during the documentary RJ clears his throat at just really specific times mm. and only during the portion where he's retelling the nights of the event. Only then. Like, for an example, quote, we went <laughs> like down, uh, down below. Like, he waits for a moment where he's like, he needs to come up with something and to cover for himself and give himself that split second extra or to because he, his brain knows he's about to lie. His body right. is trying to, like, prevent it or something like that. Again, I get that people clear their throats and cough and stuff like that all the time. It's just literally the only time in that whole interview he ever has a problem is when he's discussing the night. And some may be like, get off his back. Maybe it's an emotional night. And it's like, (laughs) you're going to hate him soon anyway. So just, just brace yourself. So, doctor, she just getting in the boat, she fell. RJ is like, you know what? She didn't like the sound of the boat and she fell trying to tighten it to the to the boat, to the larger boat. Well, Christopher Walken, his brief original interview barely referred to the Friday night where Natalie left to go stay at a hotel. During his second interview, he said that he went to bed seasick and he heard some sort of hubbub between Natalie and RJ. Walken claims the skipper came to his room to ask him to mediate the argument, but Walken said, quote, never get involved in an argument between a man and a wife. When Dennis left the room, Walken just went to sleep for the night. Christopher Walken would not speak about the incident until a 1997 interview with Playboy. In it, he suggested, and I'm kind of paraphrasing it here so it's a little shorter than that full interview, But, uh, quote, she was probably half asleep and she was wearing a coat. She apparently moved the boat around, slipped, hit her head, fell in the water. She hit her head, went into the water. The boat floated away. She floated away. In the meantime, we were sitting in the living room, the three of us talking. Isn't that interesting? I I thought he was seasick and went to bed early. Yeah. When asked about the coroner reporting that Walken and RJ had an argument, which is the reason why Natalie tried to leave the boat, Walken said, quote, She left to go to bed, and there were the three of us. The coroner was a bad man. How would he know? If a policeman had said it, it would be one thing. The police thoroughly investigated the whole thing. Everybody was questioned. If there was anything wrong, certainly the police would have looked into it. The story I just told you is the absolute truth. Nobody can know, but I believe she went to move the dinghy, slipped, fell, hit her head, died. And I just find it wildly interesting that he never outright denied that there was a fight and then just simply was like, oh, the coroner wasn't there and then repeatedly brought up the police. (laughs) 
which weird. also felt weird to me. And why are you having this conversation with Playboy so many years later? It, there's so That's many bizarre. questions. bizarre. But yet somehow seems just like classic Christopher Walken. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. just just weird enough. <laughs> yeah, good point. So the skipper, Dennis Deverne, in his second statement to police, Dennis arrived with lawyers that were hired by RJ. And he just basically parroted RJ's second statement that they had a disagreement about whether or not to move the boat in rough waters. Dennis claimed that it was Natalie's idea to stay on at the hotel on the Friday night. Years later then, Dennis comes out to say that RJ told the men on the boat that they had to get their story straight before they contacted police. He claimed that the argument between RJ and Walken got so heated that RJ smashed a wine bottle on the table and said, what do you want to do, fuck my wife? He claims that Natalie said, RJ, I'm not standing for this a minute longer and went to the stateroom slamming the door. The deputy who first arrived on the scene wrote in his notes at 6.30 a.m. that he, quote, observed pieces of a broken wine bottle laying on the deck carpeting of the main salon. RJ said that wine bottle was broken probably because of the rough seas. Oh, stop. Yeah. If the seas were that rough, also, by the way, they would have a way to tie down their liquor. Give me a break. Yeah, he's, again, I just, just so much anger. Uh, Over the years, Dennis's story would continue to change. Of course. And while it's possible he was just looking to make some money off the tragedy, because after all, once they stopped using the boat, he was out of a job. Mm. But maybe it's possible that Dennis is feeling immense guilt over the events of the night and wants to confess. I don't know if he's telling the truth or not, But he has recently stated that just before midnight, he heard Natalie and RJ fighting with added banging and crashing like it was getting really physical. Then he heard RJ scream, get off my fucking boat. And more fighting took place until everything just suddenly went quiet. Dennis claims that he didn't hear any splashing or cries for help. When he approached RJ moments later, he found him alone in the salon. Dennis said that RJ appeared distraught, nervous, and sweaty. He simply told Dennis that Natalie was gone. RJ said she had taken the boat to the shore like she did the night before. However, Dennis didn't hear the dinghy's in the dinghy's engine start, and he knew Natalie doesn't know how to operate it. Dennis also claimed at one point that he saw Natalie go in the water, and when he tried to help her, RJ said, Leave her, I want to teach her a lesson. Whoa. So I don't know how much we can trust what this dude is saying, but it just feels like he has some sort of guilt and possibly maybe because he played a role in it that he's just not willing to admit to yet. I don't know. Yeah. So I've seen some theories where Natalie used Christopher Walken to try and make RJ jealous And since RJ was quite drunk, he went into a rage and threw Natalie off the boat. There had been rumors floating around that Natalie and Walken were having an affair on the set of their movie, which caused a lot of tensions at home. But also, if those tensions were present, why go on a weekend getaway with him? Yeah. 
And why didn't Walken's wife join them? Yeah. Unless the weekend was for a planned threesome. I just don't get why it happened in the first place. Some claim that Natalie was having an affair with Walken, but why would she be dumb enough to put her husband and her lover in such close, close quarters? Again, unless it was for a threesome, then it doesn't make sense to me. Unless maybe Natalie had nothing to do with arranging a potential threesome. In RJ's second and final interview with the police, on December 4th, 1981, he mentioned having a strong disagreement with Natalie about whether or not to move the boat closer to shore to get out of rough waters, something he had not mentioned in his previous interviews. RJ claimed that the disagreement occurred Friday night and that Natalie objected to the boat being moved. So RJ suggested she go to shore, get a hotel in Avalon, and take the skipper with her. Which, why would you send the guy that you're paying to deal with your boat off the boat unless you want to be alone with the only other person that's on board. Which brings me to another theory that has surfaced in this past year. Now, we are going to jump back a moment. Or as Huey Lewis would say, we're going back in time. <laughs> uh, back to the future, everyone. Thank nope. you. Thank God you. God love Marty McFly. We're going back to June of 1961 when Natalie and Robert Wagner separated for the first time. Yes. I've mentioned her before, but Suzanne Finstead wrote a very in-depth biography on Natalie in 2001 and then released an updated version in 2020. In the new version, Suzanne claims she read a never-published memoir written by Natalie. And in the memoir, Natalie admits to the real reason why her first marriage to RJ ended. Natalie said that while it was too painful to recall exactly what caused their break, it was, quote, more than a final straw. It was reality crushing the fragile web of romantic fantasies with sledgehammer force. So what was so painful to her? Well, further in that same passage, Natalie explained why she related so much to her character from the 1965 film Inside Daisy Clover. Quote, Daisy becomes a movie star, falls in love with a handsome man who is attracted to other men, and she discovers this flaw on her honeymoon. So from what I've read from various sources is that allegedly mm -hmm. Natalie woke up in the middle of the night to find RJ missing. And since she does not like to be alone at night, she went looking for him and found him intertwined with another man. Okay. And not just any man. His English butler, David Cavendish. A man that has been in RJ's life for years. Before oh. He, before he married Natalie the first time, RJ and his butler were living together in a small two-bedroom flat. A Hollywood fan magazine at the time called David a bona fide butler with, quote, 
all sorts of movie star credentials and references, and then added, quote, in that apartment, it was like keeping a polar bear in a broom closet, <laughs> which is such a weird way of putting anything. It's very specific. I was also thinking more like he has this tiny apartment. He's not doing crazy well yet in movies financially, but he ha- he can pay and needs a butler. But okay. Okay. Come on. So when Natalie's mother met David, her warning bells immediately went off and she told RJ to get rid of him. But instead, after RJ and Natalie got married, David moved in with them. Whether Natalie didn't sense what her mother did or whether she was more interested in living this fairy tale romance that she'd always dreamed of, I don't know. So according to Suzanne, who heard it from three of Natalie's best friends, Natalie's sister Lana, and Maria's best friend, this is now the night that ends their marriage the first time in 1961. Natalie wakes up. No one's there. She opens the door, finds her husband, and the butler intertwined. She becomes so enraged that she shatters a crystal wine glass in her hand and immediately goes home to her parents' house. When she arrives, her hand is bleeding and she is completely hysterical, saying that RJ is moving out and their marriage is over. She then locked herself in her old bedroom and accidentally overdosed on sleeping pills. Whoa! Her parents rushed her to the hospital where she had her stomach pumped. She remained in her old bedroom for a week, losing 10 pounds from the stress. And even though it nearly destroyed her, Natalie took the brunt of the blame from the press for their failed marriage. In order to allegedly protect RJ's secret, Natalie never corrected the media when they claimed she was having a relationship with Warren Beatty and that that was to blame for their divorce. Years later, when Natalie's family were concerned about RJ and Natalie reuniting, Natalie reassured them that RJ had, quote, changed after having analysis in Europe. So is that why you really went to Europe, Robert? Oh, wow. Yep. The idea of Robert being gay or bisexual is nothing new. There have been rumors about it for years, which of course RJ completely denies. So much so that he released a memoir in 2008 of all the famous actresses that he supposedly had sex with. Oh, stop. And we're talking A-listers like Joan Collins, Anita Ekberg, Joan Crawford, and Elizabeth Taylor. Because Elizabeth Taylor is known for only choosing straight men. (laughs) No shade to Elizabeth Taylor. No shade. Another affair that R.J. claimed to have was with Barbara Stanwyck. He claimed the affair lasted four years, and they only broke it off because they were both too busy with work and their age difference was too great. At the time, he was 22 and Barbara was 45. And at first I thought, of course he's going to admit to an affair with a woman, screen legend, 
who died before he made this announcement, so she couldn't exactly be like, that never happened. But then I found a letter online written by Barbara in which she does claim that her and RJ were lovers. But then I did some more digging and found that there were rumors swirling around that Barbara might be a bisexual. Interesting. And then I immediately thought, what if their relationship was actually an agreement to help hide part of themselves that they didn't want seen? It wouldn't be out of the realm of possibilities, especially because of that time in Hollywood. I should also note, I don't know 100% if Barbara was bisexual or not, but there were a lot of people who claimed that she was. Possibly because she taught dance at a gay and lesbian speakeasy during the late 1920s. And because a singer named Tallulah Bankhead once claimed she'd had sex with Barbara. But again, no official proof. And honestly, it doesn't matter to me either way if she was or not. I just want to know for the sake of Robert Wagner and his possible motives for killing his wife. Allegedly. Yeah. Pretentious asshole side note. <laughs> During a press tour for his memoir, RJ did an interview where he was asked about Barbara. And I just, his answers are just so combative to me. Mm. For example, the interviewer says, you also had a brief affair with Barbara Stanwyck. RJ responds, well, it wasn't so brief. It, was, it wasn't a brief affair. It wasn't a brief affair at all. I fell in love with her. Okay, well, thank you for saying brief affair four times in a row. <laughs> yeah. That makes us totally believe you. Yeah. Uh, the interviewer then said, what caused the relationship to... But then Robert cuts him off. Doesn't even let him finish. And that ornery asshat says, what caused it? What kind of question is that? What causes a romance? I mean, we were just two people who happened to be at the right place at the right time. First of all, asshat, what caused the relationship to was probably leading to to end end yeah but it's just i find it also amazing that it's like anybody would see that coming so my question is did he know it was coming and he cut it off quickly because he didn't want to have to sit there and lie about the potential non-relationship that they had right also there's an actor named robert quarry he once told an interview quote everyone knew wagner was a hypocrite he would play the dreamy straight boy for the teenage girls. Robert worked with RJ in A Kiss Before Dying and said that RJ would, quote, come off set and put his arm around whatever young actress the studio was promoting as his girlfriend, posing for photographs like a man in love. When the rumors were first brought to Natalie, she said, quote, all these people are just jealous of us. Right. But what does RJ's sexual preference have to do with Natalie's murder? Well, some have suggested that either RJ became enraged because he saw his wife flirting with another man and couldn't stand it, while others have suggested Natalie caught him, caught RJ with another man, but this time it was Christopher Walken. 
And yes, Walken has been married to Georgianne Thawne since 1969. But again, the 60s were a different time and being outed could cost an actor his job. So maybe he wanted to keep it a secret because that would not be unheard of in that uh, particular business at that time. The manager at the restaurant where the group had dinner and drank heavily before heading back to the boat claimed he saw the two male actors touching each other in a way that he recognized as flirting. An actor named Robert Letourneau once gave an interview naming his famous married closeted bisexual lovers, alleging that one was Christopher Walken. Letourneau also accused Walken of having an affair with Robert Wagner on the night that Natalie died. But of course, it's only speculation and we have no proof of any of it. So I know what you're thinking, dear listeners. If RJ was actually gay or bisexual and Natalie truly caught him red-handed, why would she marry him a second time? Well, we've already established that based on the psychologically damaging childhood she experienced, she didn't like being alone, especially at night. And when Natalie was outright asked why she married RJ a second time, she said, quote, Sometimes it's better to have the devil you know than the devil you don't. So if RJ really did cheat with a man, and her second husband cheated with a woman, and she was afraid of being alone, is it possible she willingly married a man she knew wouldn't cheat on her with another woman? Allegedly? It's not surprising that she would go to someone familiar for comfort, as opposed to being alone. There is also the belief that RJ remained the symbol of a dream that Natalie had hoped to recapture. She had a crush on him when she was a little girl, and RJ became part of some Prince Charming fairy tale world that Natalie just had such a hard time letting go of. So, I also have a couple of things, well, a few I should say, a couple is two, Christy, that I just want to give a little update on. Because I'm oh. sure we're all very curious. Whatever happened to that movie that Natalie was working on at the time of her death? Well, the ending of Brainstorm had to be rewritten. Natalie's character was written out of the last three scenes and a stand-in and sound-alike were used to replace her for some of the crucial shots. After a year of litigation, the movie was released September 1983. Well, what happened to the boat? We all care about the boat, right? Yeah. Well, believe it or not, no one was interested in buying the cursed boat right away, but would later sell to new owners who just stopped caring for it. It fell into disrepair and was in danger of sinking. So after accruing $12,000 in fees for illegal mooring, the yacht was dismantled and demolished in January of 2020. Wow. And just for... People who like fun cost facts, I guess. It cost the state of California nearly $14,500 to get rid of it. Oh, wow. Interesting. What about Robert Wagner? Has he still been pining for Natalie all these years? Well, apparently he hasn't exactly been lonely. A former co-star of RJ's named Jill St. John sent flowers to the house 
after Natalie's death, so Wagner called her to thank her. And according to R.J. himself, quote, six or eight months later, I called and asked her out. She called a friend to ask what she should do, and the friend said, quote, well, if you don't go out with him, someone else will. And the two have been married since 1990. Wow. <laughs> but also... For someone who's like, I'm so devastated, I'll never get over this. There was also a period where it was like, he claimed it was like he couldn't get out of bed. He just, he could, he was beside himself. But then like six months later, you're like, yeah, I'm going to ask her out. That's wild to me. So I know this was kind of choppy and all over the place, but my point is, I, I, I say this a lot to most of the people that we talk about, Natalie did not deserve any of the negative things that happened to her. And for some reason, God, no, I can't even say it. I was going to say I wish her and Warren Beatty had worked out, but I love Warren and Annette. God, I hope they're still together. I can't, I can't look into it. I can't think about it. Yeah. The point is, I just, I mean, I, I have a very long theory about what I think... Well, oh, listen, God, I, going. I also have some very impassioned theories, but let's take a quick break. I got to pee again, and we'll come right back on this episode of the show. Hey, everybody, we want to tell you about our sponsor, Baron Jaeger. Baron Jaeger is a premium liqueur made with the highest concentration of all natural honey. This puts it in a class of its own. Additionally, at 70 proof, it's the perfect addition to any cocktail in need of an all-natural sweetener with a little kick. Sweet with a little kick sounds like me, don't you think? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so... Where we left off, obviously, we were hearing about all the theories. I mean, listen, I just feel like I want to jump into mine real quick, and then I'll let you take the cake. Please. I'll let you take the cake. Please. I've taken a lot of frantic notes. You know what's interesting is I had very strong opinions about this before we came into this. So I had seen the documentary yeah. ages ago, the the one that you referenced that was... What was it called? Uh, oh, the one in 2020, I believe. Natalie Wood, What Remains Behind, which of course was heavily featuring the family, RJ, Robert Wagner, yeah, et cetera. It was produced by the daughter. Right, exactly. So yeah. it's funny because even watching that, even when it had kind of like the tilt towards him, I still was like, they know something. There was a, there was a moment in which he spoke about Christopher Walken and he said something and I should have rewatched it in prep for this. Um, but I was launching a merch store. Anyway, um, but there was something he said along the lines of, and I'm paraphrasing wildly, but it was like, yeah. Chris has always been a great guy. There was some reference that he made, and I was like, they know something. They're hiding something together. That was my in immediate gut reaction. Did I know what it was? No. Have my opinions about what I thought it was changed based on your information? Yes. Um, cause it felt to me like there's an argument. My first theory was she was, the two men were fighting. Natalie says, this is too much. I'm going to go to land. She's a little bit drunk. I could see myself doing this. You know what? I'm out of here <laughs> enough. Yeah. And she goes to get in the boat. Something happens. And what feels 
and, and I don't know, what, we'll get into what you think about this too, but it feels to me like those men know what happened. It just feels like the two of them and the skipper know what happened. My gut before was saying it was an accident. That it, I don't think that, that you know, my gut before was like, I, I'm not saying that they the three of them conspired to murder her and, and cover it up. It feels right. accidental, legit, whether it's that she fell in, whether it's that they saw her in there and then were making fun of her or whatever and like, oh, she needs to learn and then she accidentally did drown, you know, and then they were like, oh, shit. That's what it felt like to me. But now having also had this this new information, it does feel like there is a bigger thing at play here. And listen, obviously homophobia in Hollywood during that time Huge. I mean, homophobia in general during that time, I feel like. Now, granted, yeah. you were getting into the 60s and free love. I think there was a there was a contingent of people who were perhaps more open-minded. But in general, yes. And, and yeah. that is heartbreaking in many ways. It's heartbreaking even now. There are people, actors that feel like they can't be their, their true selves or present as their true selves because they think it would harm their career in some way. And that is, again, that breaks my heart. Anyone feeling like they can't be themselves to me is is heartbreaking. That being said, it's interesting that we know that they were set up by the studio, that we know that the reason why he and Natalie got together was that the studio set them up. That's interesting to me, first of all. Yep. Second of all, do I think that it's possible that he was bisexual or or gay. Yeah. I think that that's possible of pretty much anybody, to be honest. You know what I mean? Like, sexuality is fluid, etc. Is it possible they split in the 60s? We know he went to Europe, which you've alluded to. Did he either claim to her that he was going to get some sort of intensive treatment, perhaps some sort of horrific conversion therapy in Europe, and then came back and said to her, if if what, again, what is alleged is true, let's say for the sake of this theory, she did walk in on him with another man and was completely blindsided, had no idea, and it did sure. rock her foundation. Is it possible that he was like, I'm going to clean my act up? I am not saying that that's something you need to clean your act up about. I'm saying during this time and his what he may say. Sure. He goes to apparently go through some sort of therapy, whatever. He marries somebody else in the process. But then when they reconnect, does he say to her, well, I went through whatever therapy. He knows if he wants to manipulate her. He knows that she's a huge fan of therapy. He knows that she was getting analysis every day. Did he say, listen, I went into this, this intensive, you know, analysis program in Europe when I was there. And I don't have those urges anymore. Is it possible that she cl- that he claimed to her that that he no longer felt those ways? And then yeah. the follow-up being is the night in question, or the weekend in question, rather, was there either, and I think it's the threesome is very interesting, was it that it was proposed to her? And she was like, I thought that we were, that this wasn't a thing anymore for you, what have you. Or was it, again, it became very clear they were alone the night before 
I'm meaning him and, and Walken. The next day, did it become clear to her that they were like, listen, this is what's up. And she again had a very strong reaction potentially to being deceived, which, you know. And then that led to, again, I still think, some sort of accidental altercation, whether it got physical with them or not, did it kind of lead to that, and that's what led to it. And then he and and Walken have just, again, got their story straight this whole time, and all of them have, have kept each other's secrets for all this time, and now... That, you know, it's more recent that this case has been reopened again in the past 10 years or I guess 10 years ago. And then there's more stuff coming out. He's named a person of interest in 2018. Isn't it interesting he's named a person of interest in 2018 and then they were like, we got to crank out a documentary to prove that he's innocent. And even the documentary proving he's innocent didn't really make him seem innocent or at least to me. Yeah. Well, I think anything where you actually let him speak for himself is going <laughs> to not let him seem very innocent. Yeah. But anyway, that's that's a theory that I'm bringing forward. And again, the bottom line is, is that, of course, if anybody was being driven to feeling like they had to lead that level of deception or a double life because they felt like their livelihood depended on remaining in the closet, it is very heartbreaking. And I have a lot of compassion for that. And I can have compassion for for Robert Wagner, if it felt like he really believed that presenting as his true self was going to destroy his career. I have compassion for that. What I don't have compassion for, obviously, is secrets about how Natalie may have died. And that if there is, you know what I mean? Like, if there was something else, the jig is up. A woman has lost her life. A woman that you must have loved on some level. Come on. Yeah, not to mention then you raised her daughter as your own. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then, of course, this butler that you also mentioned, also great point, like who owns, like who lives in a two-bedroom apartment that has a full-time butler, feels like probably a relationship that they felt like they had to hide, which, again, breaks my heart. I, I hate that. But it just, yeah, it just doesn't feel like he's telling the full truth. I mean, again, the fact that they changed their story so many times as well feels like a huge red flag. Yeah, there are a lot of things. One thing that I didn't, I don't believe I wrote down that uh, similar to what you hit on. When I heard him say, you know what, I'm so devastated by the fact that you know, Natalie is being seen with Warren Beatty. I'm so upset about it. I just have to get away. So I'm going to go to Europe. And I thought, okay, sure. And then I found out specifically it was Rome. And suddenly all of my research from last week's episode came flooding back to my mind. And I thought, isn't that interesting? Because by that point in 1961, early 60s, the only country that had decriminalized homosexuality was Italy. Right. So that was interesting to me. I'm not saying, okay, no, I guess I am saying those two things are connected, but they, they aren't necessarily, but they could be like, what are the odds that that's specifically where he went? Yes. And there's also the possibility that he's legit bisexual. Legit is just, is, is what it is. And it's not that he was necessary. Now, granted that is still, a sexuality that would have been extremely controversial during that time. Don't get me wrong, but it could also be exactly what you're saying. 
he was in love with Natalie. He did want this relationship with her. He was heartbroken. And then he was like, well, I'm going to go over there. And he married a woman when he was there. So he was also seeing women. But to your point, yeah, that's very, that's a very interesting insight. This is what happens when you do this job long enough that cases start to kind of pile on top of each other. And that really, that it just stuck in my brain as yeah. like, an, isn't that an interesting choice? I'm sure there are tons of reasons to go of course. there specifically, but it's like, you know what? If she allegedly caught him in bed with another man and he was like, oh, I've got to, I've got to move to, I've got to go move to Europe, which feels extreme. And then he chooses Italy. That also just felt like a very specific choice. But again, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how well I've written mine out. I just wrote down a lot of things and the joke is there might be some, some other facts in here I haven't brought out. Great. Yet. I don't know, but I'm sorry. It's a little lengthy, folks. We're here for it. In that, so, in that case... Ah, crack another girl. drink. There we go. Yeah. That's our uh, law and order. Doom, doom. You know? <laughs> yes. So the thing that I find the most devastating in all of this was pointed out in that biography that I read by Suzanne Finstead. Suzanne said, quote, during Natalie's life, even after her death, no one had ever protected her. Certainly not her mother, the directors who exploited her the studio executives who looked the other way, the men who abused her, or the sheriff's detectives and coroner coroner's examiners investigating her drowning. And she's right. From growing up with an alcoholic father to her ferociously ambitious mother who tried to pimp Natalie out to much older men in an attempt to further her career, and then there's the husband who apparently loved her so much that he married her twice, a woman that he repeatedly described as, quote, she takes my breath away, and yet she went missing, and he refer refused to search for her for hours. Even if we had a huge fight before, if my husband goes missing... I'm going to start searching immediately. Immediately. Especially if it's midnight and it's dark and we're on a boat in the middle of nowhere. I think Robert Wagner is hiding something and I don't care for it. And I'm not saying that their marriage wasn't real. I think they genuinely did love each other. But I also think there is a reason that both of their weddings were so highly publicized. Mm. Like cameras were there. You know? Uh, in the end, uh, she did marry him again because maybe she saw him as safe in some way. I don't know. Did Robert Wagner have something to do with Natalie's murder? Legally, I'm going to say he knows a lot more than he's saying. But then I'm also going to point out a moment from an interview that he did in 2011 with the host of the annual Palm Springs Film Festival. In the interview, RJ said that his favorite role he's ever had was Bud in a 1956 movie called A Kiss Before Dying. In the movie's most famous scene, after discovering his pregnant fiancée has been disinherited, Bud lures her to the roof of a building and pushes her 
to her death and then makes it look like a suicide. The movie's based on a novel, and apparently RJ's sister read the novel and told RJ the character Bud reminded her of him. Bud is described as, quote, a charming, amoral sociopath who would stop at nothing to get ahead. So not exactly a compliment there, sis. Yeah. RJ said, quote, I never thought of him as a villain, really. I mean, he was just trying to keep it going, to get ahead. I never played him as a guy who was a killer or anything like that. He was in love with her, and it was just too much pressure for him. I mean, he only had one way out. He genuinely believes that if your pregnant fiancé ends up broke, you only have one way out? That's a wild statement to make. Yeah, and I am genuinely disturbed by the fact that RJ doesn't see a man who committed premeditated murder as a villain. But that's just a movie character. Is there any proof that RJ had some kind of dark rage within him? Well, only if you count his own memoir as proof. (laughs) Oh, no. Once again in that little beauty, pieces of my heart. RJ admitted that during his separation from Natalie, he was devastated to see her with Warren Beatty because he was a younger, more successful actor. The quote, That summer, when I read about them, as the hot young couple around town, I wanted to kill that son of a bitch. Life magazine was calling Beatty the most exciting American male in movies. My last four or five films had been flops. I was hanging around outside his house with a gun, hoping he would walk out. Stop! I not only wanted to kill him, I was prepared to kill him. Everything was coming to an end. My marriage, my career, the life I had built. I remember thinking that if I couldn't kill Beatty, maybe I should kill myself. It was either flip out or flip the page. I chose the latter. Which is then when he moved to Europe for three years and met and married someone else less than a year later. But that sort of rage doesn't just disappear. (laughs) The fact that you see your ex with someone else and you're like, I'm going to stand outside their house with a gun and be ready. Which is next level? (laughs) I, I, okay, a couple things. One, one. Yes. Everyone has probably said at some point in their lives, like, oh, I could just kill them or or whatever. Like, there's, like, a turn of phrase. Yes. But to specifically say, I had a plan, I was trying to execute it, I was waiting to execute it, that's Mm -hmm. wild. Because I can go on record as saying, I've been in... Terrible relationships. Yes, with yes, you have. Men who have deeply wronged me. Yes, they have. And I can say, I have never once considered, not once, I'm going to get a gun and go wait outside one of their houses. That is a wild next level statement. And the fact that he admitted it in his own book feels also extreme to me. And mm-hmm. I just think that 
I just, I just know. I live. I'm literally speechless. Like I'm blown away by that quote because to me, he also mm-hmm. knows that people think that he has something to do with her death. So why on earth is he saying that publicly? I is it possible that he's like, you know, what like a super straight man would do with all his testosterone? He'd go beat the crap out of the guy who's with his new with his girlfriend. Yes. You know, when it's like a, a straight guy would be super angry about it and like trying to really play that macho. Part. Yeah. Yeah. So it's possible, but also like it's also possible he just has a darkness. Well, that, again, a true know? narcissist, a true textbook, actual narcissist believes that they will never get caught. So believes that they could be completely he could be open about that. And he's so so much smarter and so much more advanced than the police than investigators than everything that he could say something like that and he would never get caught because he's so smart that that checks that profile and considering he's also said that he (laughs) didn't believe that a character who premeditated killed his pregnant fiance of eight months also just paints a picture of what we're dealing with please continue you're blowing my mind like you always do that also from that movie, the scene where he's throwing her off the building, they took like a screen, like not a screenshot, Jesus Christy. They took like a shot from that moment and it's on the poster and it's him holding her wrists as he's like trying to struggle her over. And it's been suggested that Natalie's arms looked like someone grabbed her. And held her forcibly like that. Wow. So, I'm just saying. Allegedly. Of course. So, 1981, when rumors were swirling that Natalie was having an affair with her co-star Christopher Walken on the set of Brainstorm, it seemed like history was repeating itself. Although, I'd like to point out that, as far as I can tell, Natalie never cheated on anyone. They were just rumors... I have nothing concrete, but also she. we know for sure she was cheated on by her second husband. He has openly admitted it. And I just don't feel like she was potentially cheated on by her first husband, too. We don't know for sure. Right. But everyone who knows her is like, that's not what she would have done. And since Walken had won an Oscar just two years before... It's easy to assume that there was maybe an intense jealousy there, especially when RJ bitterly referred to his TV career as, quote, selling soap. Oh, wow. And RJ himself claimed that he was becoming jealous and arguing with both Natalie and Walken. And Natalie had recently told a friend that RJ's drinking had, quote, gotten out of hand. So is it possible that in a drunken, jealous rage, RJ grabbed Natalie by the wrists, there was a scuffle, and she goes overboard, and he was so angry and drunk that he didn't fully realize the consequences of what was happening? Maybe. I'm just saying I can't prove that he's having any affairs, whether they're same sex or not. I can prove he has a terrible temper. And that's because he just keeps writing books. Yeah. (laughs) He has, I'm going to say, 
at least three, if not more. Like he put out repeatedly just constant books. There was one he put out. It was called I Loved Her in the Movies. And it was basically this long-winded thing where he just talked about like all like the classic like Hollywood leading ladies over the years. So Natalie is in it very briefly, but just in like a in like a how he felt about her as like a performer kind of a thing. And then his own like his current wife is in there and then it's a very long gushing thing about her, which of course, I mean, it's his wife, but it was just like, again, it felt like, okay, so one book where you're like, you know what? I banged all these hot girls wasn't enough. So now he's got another book where it's like, I'm attracted to all these beautiful women. Like it just felt like, okay, macho, we get it. Calm down. You don't have to keep shoving your masculinity at us. Right. It was just, he's just too much. And he always, even when he's just giving like a basic interview, he, he always seems like he's on. He never feels like he's a genuine person. It feels like he's just flipped into a character and he can't just be himself. So I truly agree with you. I think that there is, I think I'm going to go so far as to say, I think there is no way that those three men don't know what happened. It's a small space. If there's arguing, they're all going to know. I also feel like that family that heard a woman screaming around the time where she would have gone into the water, I think it's just crazy to think that it's possibly somebody else they heard. The fact that all of them heard it and to like this day, like this woman tracked them all down and even like spoke with the kid who is now an adult and they all like it's something and of course that's something that's gonna haunt you you're gonna remember hearing a woman screaming for help and then it just stops and I have so many questions on like where were any harbor patrol where was anybody when they called and there were no answer why did someone claim they'd send a helicopter and then not like there's so many questions on why so many people failed that poor woman but yeah i just feel if they heard her if they heard someone screaming the odds of it being her i just feel like it couldn't have been someone else yeah because other people would have heard but also how did they not hear her so any sort of like oh yeah i was seasick i was in bed all night is like what are you talking about yeah like you're you're hiding something just I mean, people have nothing but lovely things to say about her. And that's how you're going to it treat her memory. Like, it just is insane to me. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's so many things. I feel like it's possible that she slipped and fell in and then they were taunting her or RJ was taunting her. And then, oh, shit, yeah. she dies. And then, you know, they release the dinghy. They throw her coat in after her, like things to make to kind of like build this story. It also feels like, is it possible that he sent the skipper to identify the body because he was still cleaning something up? Was there something that needed to be cleaned up on the boat? And I know that they still found glass, broken glass from the wine bottle and stuff like that. But you know what I'm saying? Like, was there blood? Was there 
Interesting. God knows what. Why else? It also yeah. optically is a terrible look to send somebody else mm-hmm. to identify the body of your wife. So you know what I'm saying? Like, what was yeah. that about? And you know, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously the, the bottom line here is that it is truly so tragic in, in every way. And she was failed by so many people in so many ways. But the other thing that I can't let go of is the fact that at that dinner that night, mm-hmm. Christopher Walken seemingly, according to the conflicting stories from the other people working there, yeah, seemingly is covering for RJ, is making it seem like, well, I always ended a toast with breaking a glass and she was just copying me. It's like, that's a weird thing to begin with. But you and I both know Dear listeners, you all know, if someone is killed, the first place they look is a partner or a spouse. Yes. And the first question they ask every time, if you've seen any episodes of SVU, the first question they ask is, was there an argument? Was there a disagreement? Was there? That's always the question, the first round of questions. So it just seems interesting that Walken was so quick to, oh, no, they they weren't arguing. That wasn't about that. Uh, It was about me, Uh, whatever. Like, it's like, it feels like Mm -hmm. covering for RJ every step of the way, that they didn't want to make it look like there was this tension between them, that they had been fighting, that there was this, you know, uh, you know, negative uh, energy. It's, It's just, it's, it's such, it's so confounding and so sad. I mean, I've considered, is it possible, because it just stands out to me about sending the skipper to identify her body. Yeah. Is it possible that, yeah, like, there was an accident and things went too far and then he realized what a terrible thing happened. Is it possible that he was so overwhelmed with guilt that he was like, I can't look at her face? And it's like, okay, but it's, but also to send somebody who didn't know her nearly as well feels like a choice. Um, to just not speak with police anymore. I would, I would always want answers. Oh. I would want to know. Like if I did not genuinely know what happened and it was like, I wake up and next day, you know, oh, she's over there drowned in the in the waters it's like well i i want to know how she got there yeah so any investigation you want to do let me know because i want to help to find out what's going on but again why wouldn't he go with the skipper why wouldn't he go with chris why didn't the three of them go if it was like he's 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 so distraught and he doesn't think he can look at her etc you could have gone with and the other person kind of done the task, but you could have been there and been present. Like, to me, it's just like, what was keeping you away? And it also, all jokes aside, I don't know that what I buy about this boat being destroyed. It seems very convenient to me that the boat got destroyed, especially considering RJ was named a person of interest in 2018, and then the boat was destroyed when, 2020? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I just, I mean, evidence going missing. Ugh. I mean, there's just so many things 
that are enraging. Yeah. But, and I say this, it sounds like I'm making a joke, but I'm not. For everyone that seems to be like, I have to somehow protect Robert Wagner, whether it be Natalie or Christopher Walken or Frank Sinatra. My question to all of them is, what is so special about Robert Wagner? Well, here's my first thought on that. As soon as you told me the Frank Sinatra thing, I was like, what is Frank Sinatra hiding? How does it benefit him to help out Robert Wagner? Is the truth that Frank Sinatra, when he was a much older man than Natalie Wood, did something happen between them that shouldn't have? Did he have a vested interest in making, in keeping nice with RJ and sending his lawyers on the case? Like, no shade to Frank Sinatra, Mm -hmm. but also, I trust no one in these things. I trust no one, and I certainly don't trust Mm a 38-year-old man or whoever it was who's casually or seriously dating a 15-year-old girl. I don't trust it. You know what I mean? Like, again, what was his, what did he stand to gain? I hear you. It's like, why is everyone so concerned about Robert Wagner? But so many people mistreated Natalie. I also am curious, did Robert Mm -hmm. Wagner call him or have someone call him and say, we need your help. We need your money. We need your, your reach. And if you don't, we will release the story about when you and Natalie blank. Right? Like, it's more than possible. Because we know that at some point, Maria, her mother, set her up with Frank Sinatra. Yeah. So we know that something happened. Something happened when he was a lot older than her. When he was old enough to easily be her father. And I mean, you said no shade to Frank Sinatra, and I almost grabbed my phone to Google because I'm pretty sure we want to shade. Yeah. I think there's some problematic stuff there. That makes sense. I could be wrong. No, that sounds right. But, I mean, again, it's another one of those, like, you see it trending, and you just go, What now? Yeah. What now? now? I just don't... It would not surprise me that if these three men, RJ, Chris, and the Skipper, were covering for each other or covering for one of them, and it would not surprise me if other people were willing to do the same. That just wouldn't surprise me. It seems very like once you're in a certain club, other members are going to do whatever they need to do to make sure that you're safe or whatever. Yeah. And it's just, it's gross that that's the way that it is, but. Yeah. Or that's the way that it was. Let's say it that way. I'm, cause again, I'm <laughs> coming out a little like, cause it's over for you bitches. Like I have nothing to base this on. I, <laughs> I'm out of control. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm sick of it. There it is. Yeah. I'm sick. I'm, I'm sick of the boys club. I'm sick of, you know, women being mistreated and just that it's like, oh, well, it's okay. Because all these guys back me up. And it's like, uh, he was going to kill Warren Beatty. 
Like, but but again, and that's good reading. I and again, what, to your point too, like regardless of whether or not it's true, writing it and putting it out there publicly is an extreme choice. <laughs> that is a huge yes. red flag. Whether he, if he did it for real, yes. huge red flag. If he didn't and he's making it up, huge red flag. Yeah, there's no win in that situation yeah. for him. It doesn't make you look good in any way. But oh. I'm just saying. Yeah. Well, listen, is there anything else you wanted to hit? Did we, have we, have we talked it all out? What do you feel? I, I think we've, I think we've gone pretty much everywhere yeah. I was going to go. It's it's been a it's been a real ride. Oh, what a journey! Uh, quite a quite a journey. I again, I knew so little about this when I started, and every every week I feel like I've become a little bit different than I was the week before, because this time it was just like, oh yeah, I you know I I know of her, I've seen her in a few things, but. That's about it. I know that she died on a boat with some other people and that was about it. And now I'm just like, she was a goddamn icon. Yeah. What a woman to aspire to be. So God, I love her so much. She, like a woman in like the 50s and 60s being like, women should be paid the same amount as men is insane. Oh, yeah. In the best way. Like- to even think that and kudos to her for being as strong as she ended up being despite her upbringing which yeah. was just like one horror show after the other and i mean her sister her younger sister lana wrote a memoir called natalie um which i did read the thing of it is I mean, when you read it, when you see it, it's called Natalie. But then it's also called A Memoir by Lana Wood. Because, of course, Maria insisted Lana take the Wood last name to hope and, you know, try and get her daughter, her other daughter, also into acting. Mm -hmm. But I was reading through it, and then, (laughs) no offense, Lana, but I would get irritated when she'd start talking about herself and it was a memoir but also it's called Natalie and it has her picture on the front but I just wanted to keep reading about her but I found it wildly fascinating that she didn't seem or at least openly so to have any resentment towards her which is crazy when it's like you're born and your mother's just like here here you go yeah. Your sister's going to raise you because I'm going to deal with this second child. And it's just... Well, that could also be deep programming slash something she hasn't looked at yet. That is that is also true. Well, listen, Christy Oxborough, you never cease to amaze. This was unbelievable. I thank you so much for your work. As always, you knocked it out of the park. Uh, well, I thank you for choosing this because, again, I wasn't ever against it, but you were you were really passionate. I was passionate about this one. And you know what? I get it now. Right? I get it now. I do. Yeah, it's a lot. And again, when when 
we had been talking about doing it forever. And then when we were programming Pride Month, I was like, I've heard that there is potentially a connection to LGBTQ. And then it was like, yeah, let's put her in there. Let's let's explore it because it is interesting and obviously, yeah, speaks of a time, of course, that it was not that that time isn't now too. I mean, again, like I alluded to before, obviously there's people struggle with, with these kinds of things in any profession, in any place, but certainly Hollywood has not been kind to the LGBTQ community and we see change happening and my hope is that it just continues to to happen at an exponentially quicker pace. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you so much for your work. Just a reminder to everybody, you can go to truecrimecocktails.com uh, slash merch to buy our Pride Month t-shirts. Half of the profits are going to the Trevor Project. There's also the whole merch store there. So there's lots to see. Again, I created it with my own hands. It was a lot. Uh, and I loved it. Give us a follow on Instagram, Facebook at True Crime and Cocktails, at Twitter at Not Detectives. You can also find us on YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails. I think we've had every. If there's any questions about True Crime and Cocktails that you don't have answered, go to our website, truecrimeandcocktails.com, because they'll be answered there. And if you're looking for a little bit more Lauren and Christy goodness, a little more of that magic, go to patreon.com slash truecrimeandcocktails, where we offer a subscription series with very fun bonus episodes, monthly live Q&As. It's a whole lot of fun over there, and we'd love to see you. Do you want to tell the people about next week's episode? I mean, I can. I thought you might want to, because it's kind of a special well, episode. yeah. I mean, again, this is the time that I want to have the like sound the alarm, but then I realize it's like we shouldn't be sounding alarm for serial killers. I think they would like if we did that. I know. <laughs> On the next True Crime and Cocktails, our second serial killer special, Bruce MacArthur. And if you're not familiar with Bruce MacArthur, he is a serial killer who preyed on Toronto's gay village. And it is a story that is so disturbing, so wild, and I cannot wait to share all about it with you next week here on True Crime and Cocktails. Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Goodnight, people. Goodnight, everybody. Diabolical Vengeance Betrayal Bad hair Leaning Hi everyone, this is Kimberly. And this is Katie. And we have a weekly podcast called A Date with Dateline, a recap of Dateline episodes. We talk about important issues like grainy surveillance footage, cell phone towers, Andrea Canning's white jeans, and Mankey's hankies. We delve into the details of any victim who's ever loved life or lit up a room. So find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and iTunes to make a date with Dateline. And remember, don't watch alone. A Date with Dateline is a podcast hosted by two professional amateur true crime TV experts with no formal training but evidence lockers filled with snark and uninformed opinions. Let's do yoga. Let's get fit. Hi, I'm Nick. And Let's, I'm Uriel. And we're the hosts of Hella in Your 30s. This is a podcast for people of all ages, all about navigating this dystopian world we live in. <laughs> That's right. So every Monday we invite you into our living room or out into the world on whatever adventures we go on. Or 
into our living room for an adventure in our living room. <laughs> yeah, like having your wife challenge you to a great British baking show style competition in your own kitchen. That's right. Or maybe, you know, you want to know what it's like to volunteer at a food bank. Or maybe, uh, well, you know, you want to hear what it's like to foster kittens in the midst of a pandemic. That's right. Super easy. But giving cats medication is literally the worst thing in the world. <laughs> okay. Anyways, if you want to hang out with us, find us every Monday, hella in your 30s, wherever you get your podcast. Bye. Tomorrow's a new day. Let's order pizza. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.